Thank you for being here. So y'all should be encouraged. We have two more after today, and you will be officially done. There will be a follow-up meeting with those uh, who would like to talk about moving forward as a, uh, you know, if you, you know, a consultation process, in other words, is what I'm getting at, um, where if you'd like to talk about, you know, your sense of calling and vocation in the church related to this course. Um, but otherwise, we'll have two more. Uh, next week will be the Christ the King and the communal uh, aspects of our of our community and theology and, and spiritual shepherd leadership. And the following will be missional, where we'll try to review everything we've done, but what it would look like in a missional sense. Um, so that's where we are. I know that it's been a while. It's, I think it's been since October since we've met. Remember, we had a few cancellations and some other things, but I knew the goal was to be done by the end of the year, so we, we kind of put some, read the tea leaves a little bit and discerned certain stages or seasons that people seem to be a little stressed out. So I, I do feel like we did made a good decision. I remember one, I think we were talking about going in January, and you could just feel it in the whole church. There was a sense of you know, heaviness with everybody busy trying to get back into the swing of things. And so uh, I think we're, we're wise to do that. Um, how are you guys doing? Anything fun you want to share? Any great event? Lisa and I had a really great time last night going to the opera that didn't happen. No. It really didn't happen. Because it happens next week. <laughs> <laughs> so we have this thing. Lisa and I were talking about it, and um, we were kind of waiting for the last minute to see how things were going. And so she walks in. Okay, where are we going to go? Well, okay. So what is that? You know, we got. I got the tickets yesterday morning, and um, and we went out to eat and had a nice little dinner. It's our Valentine's kind of event, and um, we're, we're all psyched up. Got my tickets. We're ready to go. So we go to the Schubert, and we turn the corner. And it's just dark, total dark. And, and Lisa said I had the look on my face of like just it was just like a total. The world's coming to me. Something's like happening here. What is? Yeah, it is a twilight segment. It's like hold it. This stuff, you know, sure theater doesn't cancel the opera. I mean, you know. So uh, yeah, we're one week before. So our Valentine's going to extend uh, an extra week, if, if, if Lord willing. I, I can't quite tell you what's going to happen next week in our schedule. So. I think we're going to go, but if not, I'll be putting some uh, tickets up for grabs. <laughs> All right, any, any other crazy stories? Come on, let's loosen up here. What, what else can, come on, who's done something stupider than that? Well, okay, not as stupid as that, but. All right, well, it's, it is morning, I know. Well, let's, uh, we're going to, if you want to go ahead, um, all of these, I, I sort of reorganized this particular um, section of the website. Uh, if you've been on it since yesterday, um, or yesterday, I mean. Uh, and you can go on it now if you don't have this stuff with you. You're going to need the handouts in front of you. Uh, and if you, you know, you, you know the gig, you either copy them out yourself or bring them digitally. And um, today we're going to start with the first two, which is Mystery and Manners, which was, was your reading assignment, as you know. And then um, we're going to look at the sacrament. The handout on the sacrament, which is from our, it's kind of a review. So that's where we're starting. If you want to pull those up, okay. Let's pull mine up. There we go. So 
part one issues in sacramental theology, and you can see from that where we are. Do you want to turn that off, or do you want to keep it on? I mean, it's really just to help you see where we are. Hopefully you will have your own. I don't know that you're going to be able to focus if you're back there especially. I don't know. Can you all actually read that? Okay. Um, so let's start with prayer and um, get going here. Jennifer Chang, would you? Absolutely. Our great Father God, we do bow before you. We praise your holy name. We do thank you so very much for the life that you've given us together in Christ. We thank you for this day and for the opportunity we have to gather together, to commune, to learn, um, to discuss, and we do pray that you will be with us. Bless our time together. Open our hearts and our minds to your truths. We thank you so much for um, the leadership of Preston and the others, and we just ask that you would shape us more and more into the image of Christ as we seek to serve you in the church. We pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So actually, we're going to let you reflect on the Mystery of Manners reading. And uh, so I just put that up there. Can you all see that? I might can make that a little bigger. Let's see here how it works. Yeah, definitely can do that. So just if nothing else by the title, what do you think? Why would I name it this other than the fact that I love Dorothy Sayers? What do you think is being stated right from the get-go here? What, what, what is that? If you've read it, what do you, what's, what's the, you know, the point? And the subtitle gets at it as well. Can you talk to me about that? Well, there is a mystery about the sacraments. Absolutely. Uh, you can't uh, examine them in a laboratory. Yeah, good. Uh, That's good. There's a spiritual uh, element. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, we're, we're not talking around it. We're going to talk right through it. Uh, it is a mystery. Uh, when we start talking about this relationship between God, who is a spirit, infinite and eternal, and you know the definition... And the manner in which God is united to humanity by virtue of the Holy Spirit. And there's a real union. And, and that, the nature of that union has been the subject of you know, discussion ever since. You know, um, in the various, and when you talk about sacramental theology, don't forget what you are talking about is union theology. You're talking about... In what sense can we say Christ is present in the midst of us? That's really what you're saying. Or is he present really and truly? Or is he not? Is he only present in memory? Or is he only present in, in, in word? But is there something that goes beyond didactic teaching presence? Such as to explain things and to inform why we do what we do and how we do it. So already we're showing our hand that we're not embarrassed to say there's a mystery. It is a mystery. There's, that's not to give us uh, uh, feeble minds. That's not to give us complacency. Uh, we're going to need to go deep because there's much about that mystery that's been revealed. But at some level, there's going to be a mystery. But, but what do you think? So mystery of manners, what do you, what, what's the thesis there? It's a protocol. There's a prescribed way in which we approach, or to approach that 
history and okay. partake of it uh, as a group. Okay. Others? I sort of resonated with the, the juxtaposition of that, that mystery element and then the fact that you have to do something yeah. to access that. That's yeah. the, the, the physical doing and action yeah. gets you to that reality that Yes, it's still a mystery, and it's a spiritual thing. Are we practicing, are we engaging, is this, you know, is this theology only pertain to what happens in about, I don't know, 20 minutes in our worship service? So where, where, where does sacramentalism extend? How far does it extend? It's all of that, one another, it's that living of okay. Christ to one another. So good, and then we try to give some illustrations from um, from the way in which uh, O'Connor tells stories. You know, remember this this is the title of her short stories collection, and um, <clears throat> and it really is deeply informed by a sacramental spirituality that she's trying to write into it. And I try to explain that a little bit for you historically and, and literarily um, there at the beginning. Although this is a shortened version of a larger paper, as you probably can appreciate, that's why. I, you can see it comes in pieces. Um, what is, uh, you know, this idea then, um, what did you understand this omega point, if you will? You can sort of look at that. Particularly notice the manners of local life. That's really significant. What does sacramentalism beg for in terms of our spiritual orientation? Is this a... If, if I could say it this way, uh, to put you, I mean, I know I hate false dichotomies a little bit, but at least it will help. Um, when we think of sacramentology, are we talking about localism or globalism, per se? I mean, you can say both, but at least in the sense that this is going on here. What are we talking about? Mystery and manners. If there is a sacramental mystery, the thesis is what with that title? And by manners, I don't mean, you know, you hold your fork in the right way. What do you think? Come on. Play with me. Well, to put it this way, uh, Martin Luther, I can't remember if I put it in this paper or not now, Martin Luther has a famous statement where if we understand the sacraments, it would be as if we were to, you know, we partake of Christ at the table, then we'd turn to our brother, we'd say, eat me. And I always like that because we use that phrase now in a little different way <laughs> this, this day and age. But he said that, you know, that you would turn and say, eat me. Now, what does he say? Well, it should be the focal point of our life that it continues. Yes, good. It reinvents itself and keeps going. Yeah, Good. I mean, this idea of the spiritual service of worship is spoken of in Romans 16, for instance. I mean, 12. You know, that, that you're offering yourselves as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. We're, we're getting into this idea of presence, God, us, being offered in a, in a communal, almost, you know, sense. Um, and we, you know, and, and there is something to do with that. You know, this, this way where the, the, the thing that really happens when you start, when we start talking about sacramentology is the flesh becomes very important. I mean, that, if you think about this, it, it's not accidental that in Reformation history, but all history, you know, where is the flesh of Christ? That's the big $100,000 question. You know, is it, you know, you know, 
is there something that happens, you know, mysteriously at the table where the flesh becomes the, you know, the organic flesh of Christ becomes that once we eat it and it turns into it somehow so that we are partaking literally of the organic nature of Christ? Is that what it is? Is it, is it just a kind of a, you know, is the flesh more of a, uh, a symbol? You know, that this, is it only that these, these signs, are they just signs? See, that's where I'm going to get into this. I go real heavy on this. There is, you know, our confessional statement, which is a spiritual relation between what? The things signified and the signs. Now, that is just a profound theological statement, if we understand what our confession is saying when it says that. And this, this whole paper is meant to take that phrase and, and try to understand it. What does our confession mean when there is a spiritual relationship between the signs and the things signified, or which order? I can't remember. Signs, signified, and signs. I don't remember which it is. But, but um, what does it mean by that? Now, what did this paper tell you it meant? What was going on here that, that it told you what it meant? Yeah. Well, you have to partake in order to give out, mm-hmm. to, to minister to one another. It's, you know, it's, it's the refreshment. What I liked was, uh, after the Omega point there, it talked about the transformational mystery of grace. Yeah. And it brings yeah. us into that presence yeah. of being able to... Yeah. Keep so when someone, I mean, the, the, let's give an illustration. So we just did this little thing up in Branford uh, Brew Pub for trying to help us, um, you know, form a point of contact. That's an interesting phrase, actually. To form a point of contact with people that we are praying for and that we care for and our neighbors, our friends, et cetera, et cetera, right? Point of contact for what exactly? Now, if I heard that 20 years ago, I would have heard that in almost a an apologetic sense, a point of contact intellectually. I would have thought to myself, you know, that what I'm doing is I'm looking for some place where we both can agree in order that I can therefore begin an argument with them from that premise. That would have been an apologetic sort of uh, confessional, if you will, if you think of our spiritual values. That would be point of contact in a confessional sense. A point of contact in a, let's call it a, uh, a, what we'll do next week, a communal sense. You know, now this may surprise you a little bit, but, but what I'm thinking of there is it's, it's what is the organization, what is the order that Christ the King brings upon us communally? What is that communal order, an organization, wherein we are moved and, and herded, if you will, into manners that would reflect, you know, the, the doctrines of the gospel, etc.? So, you know, setting up a worship service, setting up this and some other things. And there's, you know, community part is part of all that. But, but, but when I think of the sacrament, a point of contact, I'm actually thinking of what now? To move into more of a missional sense. What's a point of contact? If, if there is a mystery, and if the flesh, we haven't gotten there yet, but if what we're going to say, qua total Christ thesis, is what? The Word became flesh and templed among us. This is a deeply sacramental concept, right? And to that flesh is given the church, total Christ. To that flesh is given the body of Christ, the church, total Christ. 
So here's the thesis. What was underneath this idea for me was when us when, when this whole step is this idea that that uh, just getting people into direct flesh on flesh contact with the people of God is getting them that is a point of contact with Jesus Christ. And I believe that not just in a symbolic way. I'm not a uh, you know quasi-zangling or even memorialist, right? I, I mean that in a very real and literal sense. I don't mean by that that your flesh and my flesh comes the biology of Jesus Christ's flesh. I mean in the mystery, and I'm going to put mystery right there. In the mystery, what we talk about in this paper a lot is that, that, that Christ is distinct. Remember this? But what? Never? I must have repeated it many times in this thing. Hoping you all read this. Never separate. Distinct, just two seconds. Distinct and never separate. So what happened there at the at the Buprub was that there was the true body of Christ. It is the body of Christ, but the mystery is that this body is always distinct from the body of Christ, but never separate from the body of Christ, and, and if, if you mean by, by, by that total Christ thesis. All right? So that's that's what we're talking about in this. This is what mystery of manners is all about. This may not be the, the spot for it, but could you talk about the role of faith in this and where where that plays with uh, unbelievers enacting to this sacramental presence and believers, I, yeah. and yeah. that just how that you know, relationship works. Out. And the key to the answer to that question is how do you define faith? And what do you mean by faith? Um, you know, there is, you know, when we obey God, are we acting in faith? Yeah. When we, I know you're, you're getting to the salvation question, but I'm not going to let you go there. Well, maybe not, but at least I would have taken it there. But I'm not going to get there quite yet. When we talk about faith, it's any, any manifestation wherein we turn away from self-reliance and dependence or whatever you want to describe the original sin, rejecting God. And we turn, repent of rejecting God, and we turn by faith into trusting and relying upon God. Now there is, remember, justifying faith. We, this is stuff we talk about in our confessional theology. There's justifying faith and there's sanctifying faith. Very different. Same, same characteristics, but different in terms of what we're doing. So justifying faith is what? It's turning away from, from my own uh, self-reliance in order to you know to justify myself, turning away from my reliance upon working idols, whatever it is, to putting my faith and hope in Christ alone for forgiveness of our sins. So that's a justifying faith. We're saved by grace through faith alone, etc. Sanctifying faith is taking that same process of turning and, and, and putting our trust and reliance on Christ, but now it's every single time we make a decision. So, in that sense, I believe it's true that our, the sacramental union that we enjoy with Christ is by faith alone. But it's also true that for a person, we're not saying that they are in union, so when someone comes to our church and they're not a believer, are they partaking of Christ? What would you say? Yes. Yeah. And no. Because there you go. Well, because that's always the answer, but also because... <laughs> well, it's not all the answer, by the way. I just play off with that a lot in my um, teaching style, but there's a lot of no's and yes's. Don't okay. think I'm a equivocal guy. Yeah. Um, I just, I guess the no 
I think, then, is because um, it's not the fullness of Christ in insofar as in, if you're in, in part of the, like, a, actually, particularly in the sacrament. Yeah. Since that, because... So, so I would say that you are not the body of Christ except through saving faith. So if you were to say that the person, this, this is kind of fun to work this out in this real concrete way. So the people that you brought to the, uh, to the, to the group hub, I'm saying that they, there was a point of contact. They encountered Jesus Christ. Now the Christ that they encountered was the Christ that is in, with, and through each one of you believers in Christ. Okay? They encountered Christ in, with, and through Christ who is in you. And I mean, literally, I'm almost quoting a passage in Scripture right now. You may know it. It's in you. And that's a point of contact. Just as Christ made points of contact when he walked this earth 2,000 years ago. And you wouldn't say that everyone in the crowds who encountered Christ would, uh, you know, was in union with Christ in a certain sense, had in any way, you know, covenantally or even mystically become in union with Christ. But you would say that they had a point of contact. So that's that's how I'm referring to it here, that issue of faith. If you want to... Shouldn't that be who we are all the time as we walk with the Lord and, and grow? Yeah, but I would say to you that when I'm now, here's where the mystery breaks down a little bit. So, but when I'm acting contrary to faith, mm-hmm. are they in a point of contact with Christ? I mean, yes, it's not my my identity doesn't change. So covenantally, they still are. Okay. Covenantally, they are still encountering Christ in me. If you mean by that that I am in covenant with Christ, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, that can reflect the gospel. You see somebody's brokenness, and oh, yeah. they're still saved. You yeah, know it's him, right? Um, so, yeah, I think that's I think that's really an important point. That it is still present by virtue of your representing Christ. Well, you're covenantally present, right? But I would not say that your temple presence is is quite there. Now, that's another level of discussion. But if you mean temple in the sense that the Spirit of Christ is in, with, and through my behavior at that moment, no, that's the whole point of what sin is. Is it isn't according to walking according to the Spirit. It's walking according to the flesh, that flesh which is separated from the flesh of Christ. So therein, I think there is a both and where covenantally I'm always a Christian by virtue of the covenantal contract that is made with us through faith alone in Christ, even as I continue to sin, you know, more and more, being sanctified, etc. Yeah. You're alluding to the difference in us corporately. Mm-hmm. Representing and being well, I'd say even now. Now this is good. So now you're going to have to play that out in things you've already taught here. How do we understand power? Now remember that discussion on on the whole issue of of power, spiritual power. We had that was one of our most robust discussions, and it's huge and it's extraordinarily important. Now, what are some of the distinctives? I remember there are four distinctives that we talked about. Can you remember one that would answer that question? Trying to get you guys to. I mean, this is, we're at a level now where y'all got to start processing this stuff, you know, not just kind of learning it. So, no, I didn't know what I said. <laughs> um, so, in relationship to her point, okay, make your point again. Let's let me make sure I hear you right. Well, I'm just sort of the body of Christ about versus the joint body. Oh, you just got the word. There it is. Joint several. Yes, I remember that. Part. There you go. Yeah. So when She's we are together, there is a somewhat different presence of Christ yeah. than there is when I, but, as an individual, am just talking to someone else. He's mm, still there, mm. 
But it's not the same. Well, it's not the same, but it is. It's yeah, you're right. It's not. It's not as. Uh, yeah, it's not the same. Let's just leave it at that for now. But but what's really good about what you're doing is remember when we talked about church power, we're not just talking about the use of authority in the church. Legislative, I mean, uh, you know, ministerial, whatever kind of power. We're talking about the efficacious, real, and true power of God. How that power manifests itself and acts and, and works in the life of the world, vis-a-vis the body of Christ. The body of Christ, which is both acting severally and 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 jointly. But it's remember, and so power is a topic that's huge. And what's beneath behind power? Is the idea that, that, and why we have to regulate it. Remember all that discussion about regulating that power, the extent and limits and all that stuff. Is because if you're talking about Christ's power, you're talking about the presence of Christ here. And so for us to extend power beyond where Christ, what Christ is in his nature, is to compromise and dilute that power. Or for us to, you know, minimize the power of Christ where Christ is active, that's again going to compromise and dilute the power of Christ. We want total, full Christ. We want the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. And so this is what this whole conversation is about. It's, but it's starting with the premise that we believe that in the mystery of the sacramental nature of the ascension ministry of Christ, that's what we're talking about here, the ascension ministry of Christ, there in a real sense, Jesus is still in the midst of us. He said it before he left, and lo, I'm with you until the end of this age. That begs passages like Matthew 18, when two of you are gathered in your name. That begs passages, which is talking about a judicial context there. It begs passages like Matthew 16, binding on loosing on earth is binding and loosing on heaven, this kingdom of God. That's power. And there's a lot of power. We need desperately for people. We, we're living in an age, now I'm going off on my stone, but we are living in an age that is so heavily influenced by modernity. And our whole ethos and culture and system of government, everything about America is modern, practically. You know, we were, uh, to give you an illustration, just to, I don't know, maybe just to explain. What, so, so there's this... Uh, Video. I don't know if y'all ever heard of the guy named Eric Graydon, Graydon's, Graydon's. He's a ex Navy SEAL who's now running for Missouri and uh, governor. And he's written four books. And if you know anything about the the code of ethics of an, of that community, that is about as sinful as anything you can do. Any kind of self promotion, any kind of you know opportunistic sort of stuff is really frowned upon. Even though he's saying a lot of good things. Anyway, the bottom line is it, it came out. I got an email yesterday by somebody that, that basically just said, here, this is what's being thrown all over the, uh, the community, uh, of this, this community. And, um, and I watched it, and what was very interesting to me was, well, it's, it's basically a video just, I mean, just, just slam, just slams Eric, you know, for what he's, for, for he, you know, one of the things about that community is if you don't serve, on a platoon, for instance, you know that that's where the real stuff is. So this is a guy that you know never has served on a platoon. This is a guy that's never done blowing. Went through this whole stuff that he's basically he kind of had he found ways to see always avoid the things that real teamsmen do. Okay, that's the sort of thesis of this thing, and it's pretty damning. And so I had this conversation with this person about well, what, what what's going on here, you know, and and it got into this issue of of Americana. I mean, isn't it true? And it's, you know, maybe, maybe he's smart. Because in America, 
self-promotion and, 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 and mastering the populace media is the way you have influence. It's, it works, in other words. He will probably be a very good governor. <laughs> it works. And so it begged the question, and I'm playing, I always play devil advocate with these people I know, okay? I'm always playing devil advocate. And so it's this sort of a, well, okay, but, but who's to say that as Christians who are committed to this ethic that you, you guys are, you know, who's to say that uh, he's not doing something very good and noble and that he's playing the system in a manner that will enable him to have the greatest good? Now, surely you have thought through these sorts of things. Now, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Back to your point. Y'all see the connection? We're swimming in a stream of, of, of reality. I don't know how else to put it stronger. And the way it informs how our manners, how our practices go about. And in that stream... Where is sacramentalism? How does it fit? Will it fit? This notion that, 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 you know, that there is a real presence of Christ, active, powerful presence, active in the world. And here's where I think it comes down. One of the things that I would say Kevin and I are often talking about, and, and I should include him as well, he's part of the discussions, um, is just how evangelical Christians, now if you've read the history of evangelical Christianity, I mean, if you leave for Mark Knoll, I mean, his whole thesis is why evangelicalism is so powerful in America is that they did conform to Americana. They, they, he sees that as their great... See, I'm making the argument earlier that, that Mark Knoll makes, that, hey, instead of bashing evangelicals, what did they do? They just contextualized their methods and contextualized everything to Americana. And, I mean, there's a reason why the Methodist church is the fastest growing church in the 19th century. Because they did a brilliant job with this itinerancy, with this all this sort of stuff. And then, and you, what, is the, what is the tension that we're feeling right now? Because part of us wants to, yeah. So I'm trying to draw the line, the line of connection, I'm not sure I... I'm getting it, but I think it's the difference. Part of me wants to say, well, promoting, how can you promote, how can you be Christ without it being in your flesh and yourself? But part of it is, well, if you promote yourself, you're not promoting Christ. That's true. So, but then there's a sense in which the more we're, um, we remove the mystery and, and just point to Christ as ourselves, as a pastor or a preacher, or as the church or as a Christian, and say, hey, you need to do that, we're, we're losing out on the fact yeah. that he's actually present. Yes. And let's take that the next step, where's what I wanted to do. And therefore, where I was going is, back to her question about the corporate communion of Christ, we as evangelical Christians have lost confidence in the ordinary means of grace. We've lost confidence in the power of a church just being the sacramental church. And by sacramental church, I mean the mystery manners total part here. Not just doing sacraments on Sunday. The sacramental church that believes in itself, that believes that, man, it's a powerful thing for a person who I'm teaching with in a school 
to encounter the body of Christ that is powerful. More powerful than entertainment. More powerful than kowtow into pop culture. More powerful than, and you're going to get it when we get into the worship conversation, we're going to look at Marvel, Marva Dawn and her critique of the modern church and the way in which it has capitulated to a kind of power that is very social, cultural, vis-a-vis the Enlightenment values, but does it make Christians? Does it make disciples of Christ? This is this is why this is this paper I think is so important. If you're getting it, it's this. It's trying to. My goal in writing it, and it was written for MA Vision in Havana. But my goal for writing it was to try to get us to think more deeply and holistically about the sacramental nature of the Church of Christ and how that manifests itself in all these multi-form ways. And I'm hoping that that if you read it, you go. I gotta believe in this more. I, I shouldn't be so embarrassed. What, why would I be embarrassed to bring someone to church? Well, because if we are assuming that power is an Americana power, it's probably not going to be as entertaining as what we could have done. It's probably going to uh, be long enough, at least, to do the means of grace the way, the best way we know how per qua what the means of grace are. I'm not saying we do that. I'm not, I'm not making a case that we're doing it right or wrong necessarily. I'm just theoretically speaking. And so, do we believe in that? You know, do we believe there's power there to make disciples? It might not, again, don't get me wrong, it might not be powerful into having a social movement, it might not be powerful into creating a political movement. You know, it might not get as many people and be as popular, but if I recollect correctly, Crowds tended not to be applauded by Christ in the Gospels. He tended to treat them skeptically. And so why would we treat crowds as a methodology for evaluating success when it comes to making disciples, necessarily? Don't get me wrong. We're we're pro-growth. We're pro-evangelism. We're pro, you know, all that. We we see that, and we do have a real. We do believe that in the ascension ministry of Christ, Satan is on a chain, and by God, we should expect real, powerful manifestations of the presence of Christ unto salvation for the nations. We believe that right now, and we're going for it with a sense of optimism for that. But what we're doing here today with sacramentalism is we're asking the question: Do we believe? really believe that Christ is present. That's really as simple as this is. Do we believe it? And if he is present, is it a is it a kind of abstract thing that's unregulated, that's unchoreographed, that's un it's just sort of this you know, it's it's a mystery, therefore we can know nothing about it. Sacramentology is that movement from yes he's present to how he is present. And he's present in, with, and through the ordinary means of grace. Given to his church, the body of Christ. I mean, it's just amazing to me that that so many people read those words so many times throughout. They read the word, you are the temple. They read, you are the body of Christ. That's one of the characteristic definitions of the church. You are the body of Christ. You are the temple. And we read right over it so fast, especially in our casualness, if you've been around Christianity a lot. It's such a casual thing. Oh, yeah, it's just kind of a cool little metaphor. No, it's not a metaphor. You're the temple. You're the body of Christ and the mystery of sacramentology, both in, both of those. Temple, sacramentology. Somebody had a hand up. Yeah. So 
Um, I think my question is, is the, what is the same or what is different between the special presence of Christ that's been promised to us and the sacraments that happen in worship with that marks of the church and, and the sort of special thing that happens in worship and how, how, I mean, is it the same but just kind of, I don't know, less is the right word when we meet at Stony Creek or is it different? Yeah, but a different it is. Aspect of it's it? absolutely different. Okay. So what happens on Sunday morning is, is it's, it's more than an epicenter, but it's that. It's, it's the most full, most concentrated, most covenantally prescribed manner we have wherein Christ is in the midst of them. It's when we assemble together. There's a really, as we'll get into worship, there's a very real, powerful association with the assemblage. Yeah. When the people assemble. And I mean, but when they when I use that term now, I don't mean assemble at a house, assemble on a, on a lawn, assemble at a pub. We may be you can say, well, we assembled there. No, we didn't. Not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the covenantal assembly. Yeah. And so, yeah, we say it many times here, as you know, you know, up there. We're expecting a very unique kind of power here, right. insofar as Christ is present, based on this choreography, choreographed thing. So it's not, I guess my question isn't so much like, how is that true? Um, it's more like when we meet with members of the church at Stony Creek and aren't having the, all the marks of the church, that's right. how, I guess that that's not... So think of it, if there's five marks of the church or something, this is kind of a stupid way to answer it, we have one-fifth of the power of Christ. And you know, and there is... So it is, so it is it, obviously Christ is Christ, and, and yeah. changing, so I don't want to say that it's different in Christ, but, but it's... But it's same, but less. And to a degree, I can say this. This is how I've wrestled with parachurches in, in, over the years. Um, I used to kind of have this sort of all, nothing, it's the church, it's not the church. And it is the, it's not the church organized. It's not the assembly. Okay, I won't go there. Because you have to have all of them in order for it to be a... It's like, is it a table if it doesn't have three legs? You know, no, it's not a table. It's just falling on the ground. It can't function as a table. So it's not like the table can function without all three... If it's a three-legged table with all three legs, Right. But I can say there's there is a tableness on the ground there. There's there's a, something table is sitting on the ground, dysfunctional to be sure, at least not fully functional, but it's there. And and I think the same. I mean that's kind of that's probably too negative a way of saying. It, but I would say with parachurch ministries, or which kind of gets at this, look, insofar as they are teaching the gospel, I believe the gospel is powerful, but it's just one part of it. Or insofar as you're doing, you know, and that's part of the mark, that's part of the presence of Christ, it's there. Yeah. I mean, we say that we don't only exist as the church when we're gathered for worship. Right? So, but it's a question as to when are we actually acting as the church or when are we just a gathering of Christians, parent church, mm-hmm. which, you know, but I guess it, that's also separate from sacraments, which are signs and seals instituted by Christ, represent salvation. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I, I wouldn't have, That's interesting. I don't know what we would call what we just did. As Is that a church activity? Because did we, we didn't necessarily call everybody. To it's the church acting as several is what I would say. Yeah. yeah. It's real simple, yeah. But we're still, we're still a church. Yeah. yeah. It was a church doing that. Well, um... Anything you want to ask about the mystery manners? Again, um, 
I do go in and try to explain the mystery a little bit in terms of this nature of the sign signifying thing. Um, but w real quickly, if you just want to, um, you know, then I go, you know, note, I just want you to see down here on page, uh, well, it's in front of me, but if you're following it, it's page, what is that, five? Um, having discussed the mystery, now I turn to the manners. And, what, and this is getting where we already kind of have gone, but just to kind of remind you of it. Absolutely, the manners of sacramental participation in worship. And there's this whole, you know, what what does, if we believe in presence, this to me, you know, I find it so helpful when y'all begin to describe, if, you know, you're trying to be leaders here, and you explain why we do what we do, always, always, always go back to Christ. That is your number one rule. If you don't know how to link it to Christ, and why they are encountering Christ, you don't know yet the, the theology of that issue. I mean, it's got to go back there. So if you think about it, just think about it in, in that term. Um, if we really thought that Jesus Christ was going to show up at 135 Whitney at 10 o'clock on Sunday, he's going to come here in a very real way. God the one who's now sitting on a throne, ascended Lord, that Christ, okay? How would that affect the way you would encounter him? How would that affect the way you would meet him? What would you do? What would that encounter look like? And that's why we press the manners, the sacramental manners of a temple choreographed worship service rather than a revival choreographed worship service. If that was Jesus, the, the, the guy that we're talking about on the throne, you know, the Lamb of God, there's going to be everything that I see in Revelations 4 5, and 5. There's going to be everything I see in Ezekiel. There's going to be everything I see in Isaiah. There's going to be everything I see in the, in the, in the, in, in the temple worship of, of the Old Testament, at least in the main categories, right? The elements. I mean, I'm going to go, wow! Glorious is he! I'm going to go, oh man, I'm so humbled and embarrassed and ashamed and it's just like exposing me horribly. It's just, I'm out there, man. I'm just not, I'm, I'm in the presence of anotherness that makes me aware of my sin. We now submit humbly and listen to him talk to us. And we are attentive and responsive in a dialogical way. We're going, yes, amen, yes, and amen. We'll get to that in worship. That's what our liturgical service is doing. Amening. Amening. All the liturgy. Amening. We don't say amen all the time, but it's amening. And then, of course, there's this amazing invitation. This, this amazing safety where he says, come. You know, I'm, I want to edify you. I want to, I want to feed you. I want to be near you. I want to energize you. Um, and there's this meal of celebration and renewal. And of course, uh, coronation and benediction. I mean, that's what you would do. <laughs> You'd probably do it without even thinking about doing it. I would, I would, if you really encountered that Jesus, I suspect that it would almost become second nature to do that. I know it wouldn't be, you know, getting in there and, and, and just, you know, this big, you know, entertaining celebrational event, and then then start to get on what we need from them. 
You know? Now, I'm not trying to be, I'm being a little crass, oversimplified. I mean, I think there's some good things that happen in revival services. But to me, it's, it's, it's giving people a point of contact with Christ is what a revival can do well. It's not, though, in my humble estimation, a participation, a koinonia, a unionizing with Christ, partaking of his divine nature, as Peter calls it. That's not what's happening there, in that sense. So, um, so that's what this little section's about. The manners of sacramental participation in worship go through that. And then we go into, um, and I go through some of that and the various movements, remember, the manners of sacramental localism. Okay, here's the other thing. If the flesh is so important, you know where I see this happening right now? Um, I've been reading a lot on racial reconciliation issues recently. It's going, you know, it's a huge, huge impetus and movement that's going on in the PCA for good reasons, and I'm very delighted to see it happening. Um, but it's got me a little scared. It's got me a little bit cautious. And the reason is, is because when, when I, I read something today on my, this morning, way too early as I wasn't sleeping, um, and, uh, and I was reading something that was uh, written by someone, really just, you know, what he said was, was very um, uh, strident, rebuking, um, you know, and, and I would say there was much about it that I resonated. In fact, at first I thought, you know, as I started to read it, I thought, yeah, I think I might post this. He's really making some points. But by the time I got through that letter, I was really feeling that this thing was probably doing more damage than good recon- racial reconciliation. And what continually comes back to me is what we talked about in our BOH retreat, is what we talked about uh, someone with one. Um, which is then Kevin was here, uh, and Kevin and I and my den for hours would talk through some of this stuff. But, you know, and what I experienced in my own reconciliation life, you know, life that's been trying, still trying to, to engage that, that premise, what I discover is that when it's not done locally, hmm. that as in real live flesh-on-flesh encounters, hmm. it, becomes, it can become extraordinarily toxic. Conferences and as much as they may help, must be self-aware that they are not experiencing the flesh-on-flesh power of Christ at a conference. And it's that flesh-on-flesh encounter with with a, uh, a another race or another gender or another whatever worldview person that has a way of being powerful. In a way that this this sort of toxic, politicized, and it's very politicized typically, these sort of, you know, big thing, that the human being gets lost, you know, the, the individual gets lost. And so this flesh on flesh, I talk about the ebb and flow of the, of the flesh on flesh stuff that's going on. That's a sacramental concept if we understand that the presence of Christ in the mystery of the sacraments is in the flesh of the people. Flesh becomes a big social, cultural flesh, individuality, all becomes an extremely important concept in sacramental uh, theology. You know, as Luther again said, turn to your neighbor and say, eat me. If I were having the conversation, I won't mention this because probably y'all didn't get it. Maybe Kevin and you did. I don't know if you're a part of this group that sends them out. But, um, uh, but, but, but. Part of what you, you would have happened is if I had many of the concerns this person wrote about, I imagine for a moment sitting down 
in a one-on-one with, say, you know, Keith King over at uh, the church. Uh, I always forget his name is the church. Redemption or something like that. Um, and I'm thinking of some Tabernacle Baptist, but but anyway, so imagine me and Keith and I having that ha- talking about those kind of categories of topics. It's it wouldn't even be the same conversation. <laughs> There'd be an, an ability and an acknowledgement of, of my pain and his pain. There would be an acknowledgement of of real history that's 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 having to become be overcome. There would be this real flesh on flesh moment as what happened honestly in the BOH retreat that would deal with the same topics of minoritarianism and majoritarianism and blackness and whiteness and people of color, people of, well, we're all people of color, you know, whatever you mean by that. And, and all of a sudden, it'd be a very different context. And so one of the things I did like about this paper is he, cha- he was challenging, to some degree, what I just challenged. It's just ironically using the media of non-flesh-on-flesh localism to do it. And maybe there's a place for that. Does that make sense? So he was challenging the fact that it's becoming very politically correct in our denomination to be talking about racial reconciliation, etc. And it's becoming so much so that to have, in his words, the white church to have the black pastor at his their church, and they they they, they pride themselves that hey, we had the black pastor preach in our church. Remember we talked about that when we were here with Kevin said that whatever it is, it's not what we're doing there. Um, and, uh, and and he was talking about these sort of these conferences that we're having, and I'm going. That's the part at the beginning that said, "Yeah, man, somebody needed to say that that you're not doing rec- racial reconciliation going to a racial reconciliation conference, even if it might help you. To, maybe it's good though. I'm not saying it's not good because it raises issues. Does this make sense? That's sacramentalism. That's what this this next part is about. That's an example where the power, the reconciling power of Christ." If understood sacramentally, has to be life on life, flesh on flesh, local, local, local. The, the person that first introduced this to me in a really profound way was Leslie Newbigin. And he, when he talks about a lot of stuff, he keeps saying, you just got to go and do lo-. When he was, he was always involved with the ecumenical movement, which is the same thing, reconciliation, right? And he was constantly saying, you know, it's got to start locally. It can't, it, we can't sit down and have a global conference and do and, and, and have ecumenism. It's got to go in your town, reaching congregation to congregation and, and doing it together. So that's a sacramental principle if you understand the logic of sacramentalism. Is it getting bigger to you, those words sacrament? Hopefully? Yeah. Now, this certainly touches us as individuals. I met a friend at work black woman and we're really good friends and I took her to a restaurant and I felt in that restaurant how uncomfortable she was for a few moments I, I didn't I wouldn't have had that experience if I hadn't had yeah. Christ I mean she and I share Christ together we pray together yeah. But I wouldn't have known what it felt like. Yeah. We didn't even say it, but yeah. I felt you it. You felt it. Yeah, that's it's just in, it's amazing how localism and flesh on flesh is powerful and how it's important. Moving on, uh, manners of sacramental localism on the one another. We talked about that, or, or this second area. Think about how if, if sacramentalism, the concept of there's a spiritual relationship between the sign and the thing signified, the thing signified being 
you know, thinking of both the sacraments, for instance, or even just the, the sign of the church and what the church signifies, the kingdom of God, etc. Um, when you think about worship, it's more than just uh, the temple methodology, which we've already talked about, but it's also what is a sermon? What is a sermon? I mean, by definition, can a sermon be on a radio station? Can a sermon be in a classroom? The answer is no. You know, you'll see in Second Helvetic, we're going to mention that, I think, in the Essentials of Worship later on. But there's an amazing quote there that, that, that makes this point within the Reformed tradition that a sermon is not a sermon except that there is the mystery of the sacramental union of Christ in, with, and through that. See, the whole service is sacramental. We do sacraments, but the sacramental nature, which sacramentally... Let's make some words as fast as I can go, don't I? But it, it somehow makes the whole service sacramental. My professor, Meredith Klein, made up words all the time, too, so I get an excuse from that. And he always had a hyphen on them. They're always these hyphenated words. So they're crazy. Um, but yeah, the sermon can't be a sermon. It could be a good talk. It could be a good lecture. It could be a lot of good information. I'm not saying it's un- un- unuseful, but there is a it's a live event. It's amazing how powerful. I mean, for those of us who preach, hopefully for those of us who hear it preached, there is so much that happens in that sermon informed by that week, that week in the life of this church. I cannot possibly tell you how much. I was so glad to hear John Piper, they were talking to him about this and his books and his lecture, his talks and, and his retirement little discussion. We've been showing it in our 50-something. We showed a piece of it. Um, and, uh, and somehow I just came out. I can't remember exactly the question, but man, you just saw him, his whole body break. He says, there's nothing that I say that doesn't come out of pastoral ministry. It's, it's, what, it's everything I've learned, everything I do is informed, is predicated by, it's, it's just always a, yeah, I need to minister to this person who's dying. I need to come up with an organizational structure for my church to do this. And, and it makes you go to the scripture, it makes you go to your theological system, and you do it. And so it's always, a sermon is always the life of the people being brought into the context of the Word of God. And the Word of God being brought into the context of a life of a particular people. You might could make the case, again, I don't know, it's not quite as, uh, as oratorily satisfying, but uh, you could maybe make the case that there are degrees of sermons. You know, the more local, the more pure a sermon is, but, you know, you have degrees of localism, so an American so, you know, sermon to an American person, maybe that's, you know, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with that. I, I want to keep my rhetorical edge here. Um, but, but just to be there. So, Preston. Yeah. Um, I, I don't have a question so much as to disagree with any of the, the point there, as just to say, you know, reducing a sermon that you might hear on sermon audio to a good talk, in my mind, reduces it out of the ability for God to influence my life. Just sort of a good talk about life. And I'm not why sure. Would that, that's why would that saying. premise be? Yeah, no. Well, it can, I, it can, God can influence a. A pagan lecturer to, to reach you. Not saying that a pagan lecturer is a sermon on this thing, but yeah. I, I guess I guess what I'm getting to is like I I hear friends say this all the time. While I was re- listening to this really great sermon on Psalms, whatever, and this really great point came out, and it, it's been something I've been meditating on all week. God's using it in my life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I just sometimes I, I when I've heard 
you make mention of this particular point of localism, it, it kind of comes across that there's no power in that because it's just a talk. Okay. Uh, and you really have you really only have the power of the gospel in here in church on Sunday morning in the sacramental context. Okay. So, is there anything you want to flesh out more? Response? No, you, you've critiqued it well, so you can you can yeah. I mean, I've already admitted that that's not what I'm doing, but yeah, that's a good that would be a good uh, going too far. Okay. Yeah. I'll just say, I mean, one, if you were. Just a by analogy, if you were struggling with with uh, needing counseling and you were listening to a tape, there's only so far that that counseling could actually hit you because the person doesn't know you. You know, you're not you're not getting shepherded by it. Yeah. Or something. The other thing is, if you just picking and choosing your sermons, you're also you're not going to hear the rebuke or the challenge to the idols that a pastor kind of is aware of what the community is going through, so that the word being brought to that community is going to be more tailored in a way that that was designed that way than, than something more abstract. But, I mean, I guess the other thing is it's in the context of worship where the others are not. Yeah. So, I mean, so you see there is a degree issue is the point that I think he's making and I am making as well. But no, I'm not going to call it a sermon though. That's what I'm saying. It's not a sermon. Our, uh, because it's, it's like the Lord's Supper is not a Lord's Supper if I do it in bathtub with my kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, a baptism, I should say, not a Lord's Supper. See what I mean? So I'm looking at it. What is the? So there's two ways of looking at it, David. And, and so what you said is, of course, is true. <laughs> I mean, again, you could use Boltman, who wasn't a Christian, but is a New Testament scholar, um, and he's probably one of the best exegetes you could ever read. You know, he, but but he's not going to be my pastor. He's not going to be. He's not going to preach at me. Um, it's, it'd be a great lecture on, on biblical, you know, understanding the Greek and understanding all that. And it can be edifying, right? God can do that. He can speak through rocks, right? He can speak through Balaam's ass. He can do anything. But what I am saying, and I'm not going to, you know, and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to stick with it, is that it's not a sermon. That's all I'm saying. It's a sermon by definition, like the Lord's Supper by definition, like baptism by definition, like all those things that happen in the elements of the worship service are covenantal events that, that occur in the context of the covenantal assembly locally. It's local. That's the point. See? So, again, I can, I'm a pastor ordained of God, but if I go and baptize my kids in the bathtub, my session would rightly say, I don't know what happened there, but it surely wasn't baptism. <laughs> okay? And same thing with the Lord's Supper with me. You know, I, I confess my evangelical world, you know, when I proposed to my bride, at this beautiful, elaborate event up at the lake house, the Graham Lake House up at Lake Lanier. We go down to the basement, and I wash her feet, and I present, and we do the Lord's Supper. It was all ooey and gooey, and, and everything was great. Um, and maybe it made a statement, but, you know, many years later, I go, oh, my God, that was just, the, that was just whatever it was. It was not the Lord's Supper. You see, there was nothing there that was Lord's Supper-esque except mimicking it. And that's all I'm saying. But... Absolutely, God can use all sorts of, of, of means and methods to, to, to affect us. And I would certainly encourage you to listen to it. But to his point, again, I think it is amazing. I mean, I was, I'm, sitting, I'm in a situation right now, counseling-wise, and um, it's just amazing how, how misled someone can be by hearing a sermon on the radio. Because they are not discriminate enough to deal with the discriminating issue in their life. 
And when you get into those sorts of things that's going on in people's lives, and I mean, I would never do it. I'm sure Kevin could do it as well, and so could Aaron with his hospital. But when you get into those discriminating things, and I know you're sitting out there on Sunday, I mean, it is, it, it is as clear as a bell where the line needs to be drawn and how I say something, lest I mislead Clay. You know, Chris. <laughs> Sorry, I have a, my best friend growing up was named Clay. I've done that to you all my life, haven't I? But you know that? You and many others, it's all good. Really? Well, well seriously, my best friend growing up was Clay Spears. So Clay is a first name to me. It just keeps coming back at you. Um, but this is a good conversation. I mean, I'm really glad we're doing that because it's so important um, to hear what John Piper was saying, that you know, you're sitting there preaching this group and you're aware of this and you have to say, uh-oh, this person who's struggling in this marriage, hearing what I just said in this fairly generalized way could really get screwed. And I've seen it. Even though it's an excellent sermon to that particular group, one way exactly. to bring it into a different context. So there is some danger, and that's why I'm trying to diminish. That's why I'm, So what I am doing unapologetically is trying to diminish how a person listens to those. It's not do you listen to them or not. It's you need to get localized if you want the full counsel of Christ in your life. You know, you can't just listen to a sermon on a radio and think that you've encountered Christ as your counselor. You've heard a teaching, perhaps, that's consistent with Christ. But, boy, it's amazing when you get into that office. It's just happened these last two weeks. And you're sitting there listening. And, oh, man, this is this is a starting with the first principles of, of the gospel, starting with the first principles of our theology, crafting a very original and creative plan to help this person get saved. It never could have been crafted in a sermon. Never, no way. It would, there were too many... If I'd said some of the things we had to talk about in that group in a sermon, I could have just, I mean, who knows some of the, the, the shipwrecks that I would have caused in that public forum to do that. But even then, I can say more in a local church sermon where I know the people than I can if I go, and it's intuitive, if I go give a, a, a talk at a retreat or something, I'm, I'm holding it back even more now. You know, I'm having to, oh, I don't know these people. I don't know where they're going to go with this. So, so this is a really important conversation. I'll tell you why. It's not just about the sermon. What, I'm, what this whole Mystery Manners paper is meant to do is to help you meditate. As we did, we've been meditating for about an hour here now. Just meditate on sacramentology and what it means. Just ruminate on Just what are we talking about here? We are not talking about just doing baptism and Lord's Supper and worship services and what happens when we do it. We are talking about a whole spirituality. One, one of the articles that, that I've had published is, is called The Sacramental Nature of the Gospel. It came out about 10, 12 years ago. And, um, and, and that's what we're talking about right now. The sacramental nature of the gospel itself. Yeah. And so for someone who is overseas, like our son, who cannot go to church... And who, let's say, listens to your sermon. Second best thing. Is that a sermon? It's a second best thing. No, it's not a sermon, but it's the second best thing. Or not, he doesn't listen to mine anyway. He listens to his pastor, which is... No, uh, I know, but that's not... Just so you know. <laughs> that's not a sermon. No, I don't think it's a sermon. It, it's not a sermon. It's, but it is a, uh, it is a sermon that was preached in a certain context. And it's a context that's relatively close to him, since this is church of origin. And since his wife goes to that church, and so when he does that, that's as good as it gets. And I hope he continues to do it. Um, and God will use it. And I think God is, look, you know, thankfully, 
Remember, the language, you always got to take this theology back, okay? What does our confession teach us about the power of the church? It says the phrase, the visible church, talking about the visible local church is where this phrase comes from. Remember that. It's not this church abstract, you know, universal, you know, kind of thing. This is the church, which, well, that's, I, I don't even want to explain that. But anyway, the visible church, the local church, out of which, can anybody repeat this? Out of which there is no ordinary salvation. No ordinary possibility of salvation. But that word ordinary is really key for, for my answer to your question. No ordinary possibility of salvation. And when I say salvation, you know I don't mean just justification. Salvation is a term that's used to talk about, you know, election, you know, you know, effectual calling, repentance, faith, justification, sanctification, glorification, everything in there. Okay, that's salvation. Okay, and so my son, Lord willing, to your thing, who is away from any possibility of going to church... Um, as much as he can access the the means of grace s- severally, as in word, prayer, communion, community, if there are other believers there, and a good sermon that's from his church of origin, particularly with his wife, so they are listening to the same thing. That's as good as it can get. But I'm not going to say it's as powerful as being in that congregation, going to that small group. <laughs> You know, engaging a pastor as needed for pastoral counseling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Expository preaching, too. I mean, that's huge. How could you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, it would take us way off here, but I can give you the, the gist. Uh, the, the, and it's a good illustration of how we do sac- the, the two trajectories, remember, temple and, and um, covenantal. Um, it's a temple sermon if it's localized. It's a covenantal sermon if it's carefully regulated by the Word of God, the covenant. It's a covenant content, nothing more, nothing less, by good and necessary inference from Scripture, kind of a sermon. Expositional sermon is simply what we mean by a sermon that is intentionally originating with and seeking to be a faithful representation, nothing more, nothing less than what the scriptures principally teach in that passage. Right? So that's a covenantal value. Even as the temple value wants to talk about the sermon that needs to be localized, the sermon that needs to be, that we understand that there's a real union going on, the life of the people of God and the life of, of God coming together in the, in the life of the sermon. You read some quotes I gave by Brueggemann in this. What did y'all think of those? A little bit... He, he has a way of saying things that are quite you know, interesting. Let me just end with this point about one anothering. Localism applied to one anothering. This is that quote. It's such a good quote. I just love to, to, to say it. Talk about the sacramental convergence again. Even as we have eaten and drunk the body and the blood of Christ the Lord, we in turn permit ourselves to be eaten and drunk and say the same words to our neighbor. Take, eat, and drink. And this by no means in jest, but in all seriousness, meaning to offer yourself with all of your life, even as Christ did with all that he had in the sacramental words. I mean, it's just an amazing statement that's, that's a very deeply sacramental theology applied to our relationships to one another. And um, uh, let's see here. And then uh, applied to m- mission. Um, uh, this is this idea of localism, sacramental localism, 
this is why. No, this this is another. Now, you're not an MA, you know, church planner, so I won't go quite as deep with this. But this is something I'm really going to hammer. Actually, in our next MA training session, um, have you ever thought? How does this question of localism and the importance of the flesh of the body of Christ? How does that affect your uh, strategy for church planning and what you want to see in a church? That's the question, right? This quote from Clowney that you see here is sitting right in front of you. Um, this idea where now the flesh, the social cultural flesh of the community of the body of Christ becomes important. Sacramentology. If all you are, listen to this carefully, if all you are is covenantal spirituality, which really is a global facing spirituality, i.e., the proclamation of the law of God, the proclamation of the gospel. That's a very global oriented spirituality. And if you define your church the way a memorialist would define a church, which is really only covenantal definition, okay? Now, this is really huge stuff, guys. This, this is really good. I don't know. Maybe you don't appreciate it. But, but, but what's happening here is if you're a covenantal, you know, if you're a memorialist, then you're covenantal only, not temple. That means that my vision of a great church is as big as it can be, as global as it can be. I'm not really thinking very deeply about the local, social, cultural, incarnational presence of Christ in every community, etc., etc., that we've been talking about. So, yeah, have a mega church where we proclaim, because why? Because when I preach, more people will hear me preach. And I can tell you, there's nothing that tempts a pastor more, a preacher more, than that. You, I mean, why? I mean, you would don't blame them. I mean, come on. You want to be as effective as you can. You want to reach as many people as you can. You should be in the pulpit if you don't think you have nothing to say. So if you think you have something to say, which you don't want anybody in there that doesn't think he has something to say, then he wants to say to as many people as he can say. What pushes back at that is localism, is temple, and therefore the multi-form, but globally united in covenant multi-form congregational church which is exactly what we're trying to do in New Haven but we need you as leaders need to be able to articulate it because that's going to be a constant source of what's going on why are we doing why don't we just get a bigger building and let us all come together why don't we just worship with the hill and us and everybody let's just get together because we think we're going to diminish the power of Christ and the flesh of the people I want I want Maxine and uh, and I want, you know, the Tweed family, they bring different idols to this service. They bring different issues to this service. They have a different vernacular style, whatever you want to call it, that comes to this service. And I want Jesus as, as close and local to them as possible. And that's exactly, I believe, what Christ was talking about when he spoke of the greater things will I do. You know, now I'm present in one road, in one house at a time. With this Holy Spirit, there will be many, remember that, many rooms, one house. I, most people hear that and they think he's talking about heaven. How many of you read that? I mean, I even read it in sermons, and it's true, it's going to be true in heaven too, but, but it's really, if you look at it carefully, I believe it's talking about the present age of the church. It's talking about that there's one holy Catholic church, but there are many rooms. Many congregations. And the idea, the greater thing that I will do because of those many rooms. 
So that's pretty cool. I'm going to hit on a couple more big themes. One is just just kind of clarifies. This is the time for you to make sure you understand. You know that first lecture, I guess you could, or discussion was uh, sacramentology. You know, and the whole. Uh, spirituality of the sacramental nature of the church, as you can see. And, and uh, it's, it's probably the most important thing we've talked about, in my humble opinion. It might be that and the issue of church power discussion might be the two most important things, at least that I feel, we needed to talk about in this shepherd leader training. So I hope you'll go back and reflect on that, because it really begins to shape almost everything you do uh, and how you do it in the life of the church. Um, now what I want to do is make sure we just have some of the confessionals uh, Things straight for those who are, you know, thinking through this and, and how would you do. So this is a review. Most of you, I hope, have already taken the confessional theology class. And then what I want to do, so I now touch on the issue of weekly communion and the issue of, of baptism and, and why we, you know, do infant baptism. So we'll, we'll hit on those very briefly. Um, but I want to give at least 20, 30 minutes to the issue of forms. That is one of the bigger issues that you confront in leadership is is not so much what are the elements of, of a true ecclesiology, the elementals, I call it. Now, by elementals, by the way, don't ever hear me say that word and mean ABCs. The elementals are A through Z. It's, 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 the, it's that which is eternal and that which is from, from the covenant. It's the covenantal. It's the, it's the structure, if you will. It's the organizational structure or the confessional structure and beliefs. Those are not ABCs. I mean, predestination is not an A. Okay? It's a, it's a, probably an X or something. I don't know. But the point is, is that... It's a Q. It's a what? It's a Q. Q? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean by Q. I'm just throwing out a random letter. Oh, oh, oh Q. I thought you meant C U E. No, no, no. Okay, okay, I gotcha. Okay. So, uh, so let's look at this real quick. And I just thought it'd be good to, to kind of remind you that, that what we believe here really is the stuff you're hearing. I'm pretty certain is consistent with the Reformed tradition. And yet, some people will come here and go, well, "I didn't know the Reformed people thought that," because obviously. In an Americana context, and particularly in a denomination that has so much of its southern roots, and many of our churches were churches that converted from a Baptist context, wanting deeper and better theology, praise God, that in a kind of Baptist, I should say, even down there, that's not quite the same in some other places. But So because of that, you may or may not hear that when people walk into our church, and you, it's so important to you, but you can go stand, you know, I can show it to you. You know, this is what it says. So, real briefly, then, let's just kind of review a little bit. Um, go through the beginning. So, uh, this quote, Calvin, you know, this, this really puts it in a, in a sentence. Sacramental theology uh, has this notion about the visible church, not just what's happening on the sacrament table, though, as you'll see, it's language that explains that. No extent of space interferes with the boundless energy of the Spirit which transfuses life into us from the flesh of Christ. And that's a very close assimilation of what Augustine said about total Christ. No extent of space interferes. You know, Calvin, you've heard me say that before, but for Calvin, um, his problem with the Reformation is they weren't sacramental enough. I mean, with the Catholic Church. There was a sense in which that no extent of space, he's talking about Roman flesh. That you had to be Roman before you could become Christian in the table, vis-a-vis the forms, vis-a-vis the 
the things that were added to the confession of faith, etc., etc. So there's this idea that there's an intimacy here, and it's a mystery. And we hear that mystery especially. I think some of his strongest and best language uh, of the Lord's Supper particularly, but of sacramentology in general, comes out of this little treatise in the Lord's Supper that you have in the website. I hope you got to, to skim it. That was, I think, the, the thing, just skim it. Um, that's my daughter. Or, no, that's your sister, right? The, the Georgia. Okay. All the Georgia people have that song. Um, someone read that. Let's let's just uh, read this as a nice sort of bathing a little bit. Just let's each of us take turns for four paragraphs. Somebody start. It is necessary. Is that what we're mm-hmm. okay. It is necessary first of all that he be given us in the Lord's supper. Excuse me, in the supper, in order that the things which we have mentioned may be truly accomplished in us. For this reason, I am wont to say that the substance of the sacraments is the Lord Jesus the efficacy of them, the graces and blessings which we have by his means. And notice that word is. Is the Lord Jesus. He doesn't equivocate. Next. All the benefit which we should seek in the supper is annihilated if Jesus Christ be not there given to us as the substance and foundation of all. That being fixed, we will confess without doubt that to deny that a true communication of Jesus Christ is presented to us in the Supper is to re- render this holy sacrament frivolous and useless, an execrable blasphemy unfit to be listened to. Thanks. Thus it is with the communion which we have in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. It is a spiritual mystery which can neither be seen by the eye nor comprehended by the human understanding. It is therefore figured to us by visible signs, according as our weakness requires, in such manner, nevertheless, that it is not a bare figure, but is combined with the reality and substance. The sacraments of the Lord should not and cannot be at all separated from their reality and substance. Next. We confess, then, that it's the representation which God gives us in the supper is true. The internal substance of the sacrament is completed with the visible signs. Conjoined. I'm sorry. Conjoined with the invisible signs. And as the bread is distributed to us by the hand, so the body of Christ is communicated to us in order that we may be made partakers of it. Alright, so his conclusion here, you know, is great. To distinguish Christ from the elements in order to guard against confounding them is not only good and reasonable, but altogether necessary. But to divide them so as to make the one exist without the other is absurd. And this harkens back to our Chalcedon Christology, doesn't it? That Christ, the Word, became flesh and templed among us, distinct, the divinity from the humanity distinct, but never separate. And the same relation in the ascension ministry exists with the church now. It can be said, I mean this language is that intense here, according to Calvin at least, that, that you can't separate the real person, presence of Christ from the church Ordinarily, remember we make room for the uh, in the fallibility. Ordinarily, so we can't distinct, we can't we we can't separate it, 
But we do distinguish it. That Christ is always Christ. The church is always the church. His divinity, our humanity, the body of Christ, which is became flesh, the temple, the, the word of Christ, the divinity, the eternal word that creates of John. And those two become one ordinarily unto salvation. You see? And that's a very powerful statement. So on the one hand, you hear him reflecting that Christological notion right there. You know, this idea of Christology applied to ecclesiology. We, that's our little cliche. I mean, you know, the, the, you know the, the doctrine of church is simply Christology applied to ecclesiology. The ascension ministry of Christ, the incarn- another way to say this, remember the incarnational doctrine of Christ, the kind of distinctions, the kind of nature that's going on there, is then brought over into the ascension ministry of Christ vis-a-vis the body of Christ. The flesh of the flesh body of Christ. There's a mystery. Okay? And it's fallible. Remember, not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, we always add to it, as you'll see fleshed out in the sacramental uh, doctrines. So with that being said, um, before we say anything else, anything you want to say there? This next statement, we've already talked about that that, that union is, is made efficacious by saving faith, basically. The faith of the church in Christ. So are you saying we are an extension of Christ? Do we are Christ in the qualified sense. But the qualified sense, and it's a huge qualification. You know, lest we become the infallible church. And, and of course... We're going to carry it out. Yeah. And by the way, I won't go here now, but this is why Mariology is so important. Because Mariology patterns after Eveology and this idea of, of what is, who is Mary. And if, you know, the, the, the way we conceive of Mary as, as the first church of Jesus Christ, if you will, um, is the way we perceive the church, which is why Mariology was such a big deal um, and, and, and all this stuff. Just for you to think about that. So what is a sacrament? Um, again, notice the four, uh, I won't read it here, the confession states, but notice the word immediately instituted by God. What does that mean? That means by good and necessary inference from Scripture. So what makes a sacrament a sacrament? It has to be immediately instituted. That is, it's do this. When you come together, do this. It's, a, it's a, an immediate, good and necessary, what else could he mean but to do it? Kind of a thing. It is a sign, it symbolizes something, a promise. Like the stop sign, right? Or the direction sign, I remember a sermon you did there on that, uh, Kevin. It's a seal. This is language we put in it to try to understand it. It in some sense accomplishes that which it promises. Now what's interesting here about the seal is, is it, that is a... Uh, notice there's four elements here. Some people use seal... And they mean spiritual relation, and I, I don't know. This is this is extra this is extra confessional language, so I'm not going to take issue with that. But just notice that I and, and Bannerman and, and others have made it, there were four. Some people will say there's three. So I just want you to know that. And if you're talking to a reformed guy, or I don't know, you know, in 50 years when I finally die, and I'm no longer whatever you, gotta, you know, they say, oh, there's three marks of a, of a sacrament. Okay, you know, it's okay. Um, but listen carefully how they mean that seal then, if there is three marks. Because here, in fact, even the way I put it here is a little bit silly, I think. Um, what we're talking about is a covenantal, it's a decree. 
it's, 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 so you, you know, you know, when we talk about the doctrine of decrees, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the, it is the very decree of God that is put upon you. It's like the sign, the mark that now is put upon you and you are designated, set apart for that mark. You've been sealed in your identity, if you will. And if that's the way you sign a seal as a covenantal act of God, then you would add this fourth one, which is a spiritual relation between the thing signified and the sign, or what Behrman calls as a means of grace. A means of grace. Now, we didn't say the agent of grace. That would be Roman Catholicism, where the church, vis-a-vis the sacrament, has a power inherent to itself. We didn't say no grace. It's just a symbol. We said a means of grace. It's the instrument in the hands of the Spirit of God which affects, which empowers, which vivifies. I'm using any language I can to say it is a real experiential power that affects salvation. Not necessarily. Not so immediately as you're going to say. Did you want to say something? The only other one that I've heard of is for that could be for all people. For all Christians. So it's not just would remove something like marriage or holy mm. or something like that, but it, it's, it's it's for all Christians. Yes. Okay. Good. Yeah. I don't know. That. Yeah. I mean, I, it, that would come by a media institution as well. We would say there is no media institution for all Christians. Yeah, but that's good. Thank you. So notice what it says and doesn't say. Just to be clear, again, this is all should be incredibly review. If you go and look um, and listen to what it says, listen to this language or confession. The grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used is not conferred by any power in them. Okay, it's not magic. Neither doth the efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety or intention of him that doth administer it. So if Kevin's having a bad day um, and he's not walking with the Lord in certain sense on Sunday, or me or anybody else, I just wanted to pick on Kevin, um, then the sacrament's still good. Because it's not Kevin that's administering it. It's God vis-a-vis the church. Even if I left the faith. Yeah. Admitted from the ministry. That's right. And went atheist. That's right. By the way, how does that affect, we haven't talked about this here, but how would that affect our view of the Roman Catholic Church? And their baptism. That's the, the, how would you make that argument one way or the other is my point. Let's don't, dissolve, let's don't resolve it right now. Our policy as a church is to... to to acknowledge the Roman Catholic Church as a true church of Jesus Christ. Though, deeply, we would say, compromised in many theological points. Deeply compromised. Okay? But we would do that. Why? Because we're not going to say, you know, if we find a creedal manifestation of the gospel, howbeit added to and subtracted from in certain ways, perhaps, that are very uns you know, satisfying or un- whatever tenable, um, we we would hold it to be a church. So the key see is that that guy doing it doesn't make it a sacrament, and not one administration of the church makes it a sacrament or an era even. It's when the church still has the gospel in it, the, the gospel, the, the you know, the essence of the, the ecumenical creed, and if, and it does, we believe. You know, and you could, I think, see it. You can go through their liturgy, and it's, it's pretty amazing. It's there. It's just the stuff they've added to it that gets you in trouble. And, um, you know. 
So notice, I'm, I'm quoting here from the confession, because I don't think we slow down enough at it. So now we've got this statement, right? Upon the work of the Spirit, the word of institution, which contains, together with a precept authorizing the use thereof, a promise of benefit to worthy seniors. So that's the no grace, you know, that's sort of the qualifying of grace being conferred. I've asked the question, is grace conferred, yes or no? And we're going to say, not necessarily. And later I'm going to show you, we're going to say, and not necessarily immediately. It's not like this little, you, you drink it and go, bing, you know, you're born again when you get baptized or something. So, no, grace is not conferred by any power in them, neither doth efficacy of a sacrament depend upon the piety, etc. Yes, notice it said, grace is conferred upon the work of the Spirit, the words of institution, da 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 you see that? Now look at how that applies, um, you know, this works out. You have a holy sign. And what we said is that there's a spiritual relationship between the things signified in the sign, right? So what is signified in baptism? Here it is. According to our confession, it's that you are being engrafted, unionized into Christ. Of regeneration, of remission of sins, and is giving up unto God through Jesus to walk in newness of life. And by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promise is not only offered. Okay, that, that, no, I'm sorry. That, that, I'm sorry. I was up in the first part. Lord's Supper of His body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in His church until the end of the world to the perpetual remembrance of sacrifice of Himself and His death. Notice perpetual. Now, if you go down to the seal part or the means of grace, right? Is there this relationship between this uh, thing signified and the sign? In baptism, if there is, we are engrafted into Christ by baptism. Now, by the way, when would you baptize somebody? When they need to be engrafted into Christ and be saved. That's called what? A converting ordinance. I mean, what's being described here is a converting ordinance. Now, that's going to be huge when we talk about why do you guys over in these particular churches do baptism and Lord's Supper at the same time? Why do you admit them at the same time? One is converting. One is, what, renewing, perpetual, remembering, renewing. Why would you do them both? You've lost. There's never been a time in redemptive history, I'm getting into the argument for baptism, where you didn't have two ordinances, if you will, sacraments. Sacraments, one which converts you, one which renews you. Now, it's true in the Old Testament. If a Gentile converts to Judaism, what will you do if he's a male? Well, you circumcise him at the same time that he's now admitted into the temple and with all the full benefits of the sacrificial system, etc. You do that. But, but we would too. I never let anyone get away with saying, oh, uh, we're believers Baptist, and you're infant Baptist, or something like that. Or So you don't believe in believers baptism. I said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Of course we believe in believers baptism. Anyone that has not been baptized, who has not been engrafted into the visible body of Christ, is going to be baptized into the visible body of Christ, vis-a-vis baptism. And we do it every time someone's born again, who wasn't a covenant member of the church. Okay, so we're believer Baptists. We're also infant Baptists. And we'll go through that in a second. So the right use of this ordinance, the grace promise is not only offered, but really exhibited. This is out of our confession. Don't let anybody tell you that Presbyterians don't believe in, you know, efficacious, real presence, all that. And conferred, I mean, how much stronger can the language be? 
by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. So our little cliche that I put in the, uh, in the uh, Baptism that Saves book that you have is, you know, yes, sacraments confer grace. What? Not necessarily. Not necessarily immediately. All predicated upon divine election. I'm not going to lose my order salute, my order of salvation doctrines, you know, in the confession. I'm not going to forget how salvation happens, and it all begins with God and those whom He has called, or then predestined. Those who predestined are then, you know, little Romans eight. So we always remember that this this body, there's it is Christ. It goes back to your your ecclesiology from our Christology, though. The church is Christ. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately. The church is Christ, distinct but never separate from the from the divinity Christ, etc., etc. Um, so that's baptism, and then the Lord's Supper, the sealing all benefits thereon unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, to be bound and pledged of their communion with Him, of with which each other as members of His mystical body. That's the language in our confession. His mystical body, which brings all this stuff into it. Um, and then notice the language there, that we receive all of this inwardly by faith, really and indeed. Now, there's that really stuff again. But not carnally and corporally, but spiritually, i.e., what, is, what are they saying not going to happen there? Transubstantiation. Yeah, transubstantiation. It's not going to turn into any kind of biological something that it wasn't. So if you look at the way that we more or less get into the traditions against Romanism, um, you know, I'm not going to read all this, but basically, agent of grace, the church becomes too... uh, The distinction between church and Christ gets too compromised. Over here on the evangelical side, I call it mostly Pietist, Anabaptist, whatever, radical, Zwinglian... There is really no sacramental union. It's it's a remembrance only. It's it's a it's a uh, what do you call that? A didactic tool. It's pedagogy, if you will. It's this idea that we do this as a yes, biblically instituted symbol that helps us keep the gospel in front of us. Would be the best sense I could say of that. Which we do too, by the way. We we certainly understand that that's part of what it does for anyone who comes to our church. It's doing it, even if they're not believers. That's doing it. But you see where they are. Where the Reformed is in the middle there. Um, there's a spiritual bond, affected by God, the Holy Spirit, received by faith, so that to, by receiving the sign, the thing signified is also received. And there, there we have that statement. Um, what yeah. about that? Would we say that um, they are on one side or the other is like overemphasizing either the temple or the covenant? Uh, yeah. Categories? Well... I mean, the thing about the temple and the covenant is be careful. They're not in the, they're distinct but never separate again. Remember, because that's going to feed our Christology, word and, and flesh, distinct and never separate. Hope you're seeing that, that the covenant word and the temple flesh is what we're dealing with in Christology. So think of distinct and never separate. So you're right. The, you know, one of the things that makes good theologians nervous with this, this language is that it's hard not, it's, it's impossible to say that the temple is not a subject matter for the covenant. 
just as it would be impossible to say that the covenant is not a subject matter for the temple. So if you were looking through redemptive history, I'm, I'm going to get to your question. I know I'm not quite there yet, but I will. But if you were going through redemptive history and you were, okay, here's this covenantal book and here's this temple book or here's this covenantal, you know, strain and here's they're all nice and clean and zzz. No, they're just all in there like just like Christ is, human in flesh. They're all in there just like that. Um, it's more what those two trajectories are, are accomplishing in a mutually... Uh, codependent way or uh, interdependent way, better word. So, with respect to that question, um, say it again to make sure I, I say it right. I, I know we we're talking about it, but yeah. The question was would either of the two sides that you just set up uh, for. Does it correspond, yeah? Yeah. Does one overemphasize, maybe not just singularly represent, but overemphasize one or the other? So, I would say that, um, well, you could maybe, I haven't thought about it, so I, I'm, I'm a little hesitant, but let's just, if you were to do it, though, yeah, you could see how I might say the memorialist seems to only do the proclamation side of the covenant, the word, and the uh, and the um, Catholic or whatever, the hyper, only does the temple without the word, you know, so, I don't know, yeah, it's interesting, but you're getting kind of the feel of it. So let's talk about the... Uh, you know this idea. Uh, we talk about um, we talked about. So here's some of the issues that you should be aware of. There are policies. One being the issue of Roman Catholic baptism, which I mentioned earlier. That's out of the minutes of our session. What makes baptism valid? We've talked. We really kind of talked about that. So it really comes down to well, what makes it valid is that it's it, it, on those four points in a visible church. But the key is it's got to be in a church, right? What makes a visible church a, a true visible church? By true, we didn't say perfect. We didn't even say recommended highly or something. We just said it's a church. And we get you to that. Um, and then in regards to the Roman Catholic Church, we get to that. And focus especially on Vatican II, Catechism of the Catholic Church, and as, as their most recent formal document of, of faith and practice. And so um, that was basically the gist of it. But don't you think we're going to disciple people? If they have come, and we're going to make sure we the issue of assurance will be a big one. The issue of what are they, what is the authority of the church will be a big one. And there are things that we'll talk about. By the way, we do the same thing with the evangelical memorialist. Honestly, from a theological point of view, no, this might rub some of you wrong. From a theological point of view, sometimes it's hard for me to judge which I would prefer. Um, Because the Roman definitely has some problems. It feels to me that in compromising, especially the gospel. But the evangelical, broad, pietistic evangelical has some problems too, and that it really compromises the missional nature of the church in terms of its presence, theology, etc. And oftentimes the pietism side of it becomes just as pharisaical as the pietistic side of the, uh, in a Roman Catholic way. I mean, sacerdotalism is the pietism of the Catholic Church, you could say. If you know that word, that idea that that you're saved by religious, uh, you know, practice, you know, going to church, having mass, things like that, and that's a pietism that's that's more ritualized, right? But what, what's the difference between that and the pietism of an evangelical who's constantly causing, you know, use, utilizing moral practices as a basis for assurance? So you know. Um, you know, pharisaicalism tends to be 
very. Uh, it, it, it te- I don't know if I can. I haven't done a good historical study like this, but you find it typically in the majority, in the sort of religious majority. So there was a time when Roman Catholicism was the religious majority, and therefore there was a Pharisaicalism, a, a kind of self-righteousness that can point to the world and, and kind of put their moralisms on the world. And when you get into a, another context, maybe an evangelical, pietistic context of Americana, there's a real Pharisaical tone to it. You know, always sort of finding the sins of the world, not feeling as much as you, you'd like the, the self-realization of our own sins, even if they're a majority. So majoritarianism has a way of being pharisaical, even if the minoritarianism can have a tendency of being very victimized, sort of a victimization, sort of this victimized spirituality. They both can be wrong, and etc. Just a that was three. You don't have to pay for that one. <laughs> um, who are the recipients now? Of course, I, you know there's a lot of ways. I hope that you've read um, the baptism of saves chapters that I gave you. Because the one thing I would say, and, and I, oh, let, let me stop here. Is there anything we just talked about that you want to ask about? Talk about, and engage. Please do. We have plenty of time. We're going to finish on time. Yep. I, um, I've always struggled with the, uh, the summary position that the Roman Catholic Church is, is a church. Yeah. Um, when, uh, when it seems to me I, I've never had an encounter where I could say yeah. they have the gospel. So, so we judge it based on certain criteria, and then we say, therefore it's a church, but we don't go back and say, maybe our judgment is, maybe our criteria is off because we just judge the church that doesn't have the gospel as being a church. But, you know, well, hold on, we didn't say they didn't have the gospel. If they, if they didn't have the gospel, it would be a church. Well, that's what I'm observing in the reality. Okay, not the that's docu- a big difference. Not the documents. But so who are you observing? Hmm? Who do you observe like this? Uh, every Roman Catholic church. And every person? You mean church or person? What do you mean? The presentation in their mass. Okay, you're talking about what they say. Yeah. Hmm. But I heard the gospel of the Roman Catholic uh, a funeral not too long ago. I, I don't mean that I haven't heard a passage or scripture read, yeah. but I haven't heard... That it articulated clearly. In a, in yeah. a, well, you see what I was doing? I wasn't trying to, I was playing with you a little bit just then. I heard it. Um, you know, what I'm trying to say is we can't make that decision anecdotally. We can't make it based on just observation. Um, we have to make it based upon some kind of, in other words, the, the simple matter of the fact is, well, I might want people to judge our church by our people and how they, and what they believe and say to some degree, because I think we have a pretty good group of people here. But at the end of the day, I would not want you to judge this church based on what any particular person says at any particular time. You know why? Because the church is, is always uh, uh, the church unglorified. We're, we're, we're still this church in process. So my point in that is just, I hear your point, and, and I suspect there are greater and lesser degrees of gospel of... Um, whatever, not even centered, gospel preaching, teaching churches that are Roman Catholic. So we could concede that. You may even have regions where they're more or less. See, we're looking at the church that is organically united. So I'm getting you at a principle. So let me tell you this. We do the same thing, for instance, when we talk about um, community churches. I mean, you're, you're now... So you're the community church of Billy Bob, you know, and, and what, what makes the, the orthodoxy of that community church? 
Well, oftentimes uh, in that context, if they don't sustain, hold to a creed, what are we going to do? So we have to go to that particular church and say, let's look at this particular church's statement of faith. And if they don't even have that, I don't think the session could probably, in good conscience, rule it as you're being transferred from a gospel-believing church. Why? The Christian, the man, the pastor of that church, if I went and interviewed him, I guess, might show himself to be a very orthodox man. But if the church has never adopted any statement of faith, creed, you see, so, so really what your question really gets at, Gary, which is a very honest question, is how then do we make these judgments? Uh, if it's not anecdotally, i.e., that we go in every particular Roman Catholic church to see how it teaches and how it uh, uh, performs its Vatican II creed. How would we do that? You know, um, And so we just take what presumably is their statement of faith, presuming that it is their statement of faith, um, now, again, that's very different than saying, would I recommend someone to go to that church that you're talking about? There gets to be, a, that's where it gets very localized and now anecdotalized. Because I'm going to say, okay, well, let's talk. Well, what, I mean, there are churches I'm aware of that are Roman Catholic that are relatively evangelical. I mean, we have a person, I won't say it's in the because I don't want to misrepresent this person, but we have a person who's a very influential and, and active member of the, we've got several people in this church who would call themselves Catholic, Roman Catholic, evangelical Roman Catholics, people who believe and hold to the gospel, who know that there are Roman Catholic churches that 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 is proclaimed in a way satisfactory, that found this particular church hospitable to their beliefs, only because we had some other doctrines, of course, that are Presbyterianism with the gospel. They were, they were able to, to at least tolerate it. <laughs> And that's the nature of anecdotal judgments. It's always a kind of what do we tolerate, what do we don't, you know. But when it comes down to a session making a, a policy, then it's going to be based on judging the, org- the organic ju- church itself, not a particular congregation. So you see, there, so if, we, if you were to go from this church to another church and they treated seriously that, that thing, have you been baptized? And you're going to say, yeah, I was baptized in Christ Presbyterian Church. Let's just say that church has no clue who we are. They've never heard of Presbyterian. They've never heard of any. I don't know. What would they do to see if it's a church? They would go to our statement of faith called Westminster Confession. They would read it. And they say, do we see the gospel here? Is this, it, does it have at least the fundamentals of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this, in this stuff? We don't agree with half the stuff they said, maybe, but I do see it. If they were acting in a... In, so you see, we're, we're asking the question of the church corporately or qua church. We're not asking the question church in its particular practice at a particular time. That's how we would resolve it, though. Um, Cody online just said, here's one thing they say in every Roman Catholic Mass uh, about Jesus. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate he suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So that's the gospel right there every Sunday, Cody suggests. Yeah, yeah the, the next thing that Protestants would love to hear, thank you, Cody, that was helpful. Um, the next thing we'd want to hear is how do you receive it, right? And, and there's that line of, you know, there's a paper that I think I put in, we've already talked about that in, I think, our confessional class where we looked at the Roman Catholic issue and, Saving faith, or maybe that was a confessional. No, that's in our confessional theology. 
where we talk about justification, and I give you a, a statement of, of that issue. And it really gets to this issue of how we understand the relationship of faith and works. And, you know, Catholics will push back and say, um, you know, that we don't think you're saved by works, but we think that, you're, that any faith without works is not salvation. And, and, and then you're just trying to, now you're getting to another level of, well, then can you distinguish, we could agree with that, but can you distinguish between uh, saving faith and, um, you know, in a particular situation, discerning that assurance of saving faith? See, our nervousness is maybe more about the doctrine of assurance and how a person can have assurance if you would at any moment allow them to judge themselves and as terms of their being justified by any works of the law. See, and that's where we get nervous because justifying grace is compromised. And once you open the Pandora's box, even if it's in a vague love your neighbor kind of work, well, well when do I love my neighbor enough? And how do I know when the loving my neighbor is satisfied enough of the law? You know, in that James passage, if you've broken any part of the law, you've broken it all. So it can't be the means of my assurance that I, that I'm, you know, that I break any part of the law because James makes it very clear that no one can have assurance based on that. So what is the basis of my assurance? So that's, it gets kind of messy in there. But that's good. Very good. Let's uh, move on. Um, so we'll get beyond that. Okay, in terms of the baptism question, again, um, the first thing that, that when, if someone were to ask me, uh, you know, ask you, why do we do infants? Again, I've already made the point. Don't ever let them pigeonhole you and say you, you're, we're the believer Baptist and you're the anti-believer Baptist or something like that. We are believer, believer Baptist. We baptize their, they become believers, you know, as adult believers. Um, the question is what do we do with the children? And, you know, here's a classic argument that goes through it. Um, the thing I wanted to do in the book, um, so you, you, often there's a continuity, you know, argument, where you, you show that, that the function of baptism in the New Testament functions in the same manner as the function of circumcision in the New Testament, albeit with the caveat that it's expanded to include women, just as you see a kind of expansion trajectory going from the Old Testament to New Testament and other areas as well. Um, and so it, it functions in the same manner. They're listed in, in the same context. I mentioned here Colossians. Uh, one that's often used is Colossians 2, 11 through 13. You can see it there. Um, part of that uh, argument, which I think is very powerful, is to take the promise of circumcision in Genesis 17 and to uh, show how it is mimicked or even, you know, repeated when in the context of baptism or speaking of baptism in Acts 3 and Galatians 3. So you go, wow, there it is, you know, quoting, you know, Genesis 17, but baptism's being the subject matter. Um, so that's the continuity uh, argument. Um, the other argument is, is household baptisms. Um, now, to be honest, it doesn't resolve the issue one way or the other. I mean, we're not told the constituency of a household, but it at least gives me a benefit, of, gives the infant baptism benefit of the doubt. You know why? Because households in the New Covenant first century context consisted of, of, of whole families, not just, I mean, not just one nuclear family. But when you see the household of Cornelius being baptized, you're talking slaves and servants and, and peoples and families. And to imagine without any qualification that there are no infants in that child, in that family. And it also gets to the issue of, of the covenant. What's so foreign to Americana is the federal representation uh, principle that is the way in which first century households were governed, i.e., you had a head of home. 
You know, you had a federal head, a covenantal family head. And so the, the faith of the covenant head is, interestingly enough, the only thing that is uh, mentioned in these households. Cornelius becomes saved, and he and all his household gets baptized. You see? Huh? They weren't adult unbelievers. Of course, exactly. That's right. That's right. There could have been. We're all instantly saved. Yeah. doesn't make sense of that. That's right. So maybe, yeah, that's true. But evidently there was a work of the Spirit and people were being saved. My point is there's no qualification. It's not that, again, I, I'm not making the case that, okay, that proves it. Wow, look at there. Because we don't told how old they are. We're not even told anything about what, what you know, awesome dynamics there. Maybe somebody, we do are, I think we are in one instance told of someone not being a believer or something like that. But, um, but the point is, is that if I'm a Baptist... This is a major big deal, you know, to not mention the the individual saving faith of everyone. Uh, ever, you know, you'd list everyone who had professed faith in Christ in a manner that you just don't see. So it just gives you a little bit of a remembering the first century and biblical concept of family and household and the way in which these households were governed by a federal principle. Um, and therefore, to be in the family of Preston Graham as a child is to be in the covenantal framework of that family. And if that family is a member of a church, then so is the child. The, the language of covenantal headship or federal uh, governance is the same language we use in America, of course. And who are the constituents of America? Who receive the rights and benefits of being an American? It all comes down to whose household were you born under? If they were American, you are de facto American. So it's just the way in which federal represent, federal headship works. Um, so that's another argument. To me, the biggest argument, though, um, is one that I really emphasize in this book. And I'm trying to make the case that if you are sacramentalist, now this is really important, if you are a sacramentalist, then it almost that to me just it, it just makes the decision right there. Why? See if you can do it. If you've read the first couple of chapters, then you know what I mean. If you're a sacramentalist, why would you offer salvation or, or uh, baptism to to covenant children? Of those two sacraments that we have. Okay, good. Lord's Supper being renewing. So, what is the purpose of, sa- of baptism? Entrance. Is it because you're saved? Mm-hmm. Or is it in order to be saved? Mm-hmm. Bingo. So, you give it to those who are brought under the jurisdiction authority of Christ visibly in order for them to be saved. You see? Now, if you're an adult outside of another, if you are your own covenant head, if you will, then, then, then it would be simultaneous. You are, you are being admitted into the, the covenantal body of Christ by virtue of your creedal confession of faith, of which then you are being baptized. But the example I would give is St. Augustine. According to St. Augustine, again, I think I mentioned in this thing, remember, he did not count himself as saved until he was baptized that Easter Sunday. Hmm. And, and, and the, where, where he, where Christians, evangelical Christians, were Baptist Christians, which were typically evangelical on front, um, when they, when they, they typically go to, I think it's chapters eight, seven, eight, seven. eight, seven, yeah, where he hears the garden experience. And it's not until, I think, chapter nine, 
where he says, I finally, the burden of, of you know, built was left from, you know, rolled off my back or whatever the language was he used. And so why is that? Because for him, while he was, he was, he was being catechized, he was going through that process, he had become, if you will, an ethical Christian. He had become a, I don't know, you could come up with a lot of definitions, a, a, a Christian in terms of his morality, but he was not yet a Christian in terms of being engrafted into the presence of Christ. And that baptism saved him that way. And so you see a passage like that. Now I'm going to have to stop there because I want to do one more thing before we stop. And I've got about 25 minutes, 20 minutes to do this. Then you'll have a full uh, hour, a little more. You need about an hour, an hour and a half. So what do you need? Not an hour and a half. Okay. Um, so let's, let's, any questions about baptism? So that's just the argument. You can read it. But I just wanted you to see that there is a kind of hermeneutical uh, argument. That's the continuity thing. There's the, um, there's the you know, observation of household baptisms but most importantly to me is we believe sacraments are efficacious you give it to people so that language uh, uh, this, that's why I taught the book of baptism that saves you see it all over the place and we try and as a baptistic kind of a guy before I came to this position I found all sorts of ways to sort of spiritualize those passages that now this baptism saves that's a quote from Peter or you know what must I do to be saved be baptized and you will receive the, the Holy Spirit those are converting sounding events. And why would you why would you just mess with all that? But not necessarily, not necessarily ordinary. By the way, you know what? One of the things I should say in closing to this issue, my advice to you if you talk to someone about infant baptism is don't start with the biblical arguments. Um, you really don't that's not usually the real issue. You might want to guess what the real issue is. Works. I'm not sure what that means, actually. Yeah, right. It's up to me to accept. Okay. So there's the individual thing. It's up to me. But why is that such a big issue for them? What are they really? Let's. Let's. It's very important in any kind of rhetorical exercise. You know, debaters do it. You know, but do it in in terms of winning anyone. Is to you've got to start with the affections. Start with what's what's the heart here. What what in the best sense of the word are anti pedo Baptists worried about? They don't want to, well, my guess might be that, uh, like, wanting your child to be a Christian is, is, like, where your heart would be, and you don't want to sort of feel like you're maybe maybe forcing them or give, not giving them the sort of liberty. Yeah. And what's underneath that? Why would they be so worried about that? False assurance. Yep. That's False, assurance. False assurance. False assurance. Inauthenticity of spirituality. Dead Christianity. Um, it comes in many phrases and forms. But see, that's so important. Um, most people know rightly that Christianity is a conversionist spirituality. You must be born again. I do not know how you can ignore that. And that is conversionist spirituality. That is the idea that you can, some can say, Lord, Lord, and they not converted. It's the idea that you can be a pseudo foe, fake, whatever you want to call Christian. And they're worried for their children that we will if it's their children they're worried about they're worried that my child will not have the opportunity to have a true and genuine conversion experience wherein they can have the assurance of that salvation that's based upon a genuine and true uh, embracement of Jesus Christ. 
they are, you know, you need to sit down with them and tell them how much you appreciate their concern for that. Because by God, you're going to hear about a movement in a minute that sometimes can lose that. That idea of the, it's really the temple side. If we, if this is a temple covenant. If all you have is covenantalism, and Reformed tradition tends to get over on that side a lot. They are very afraid of experience. They're very afraid of any kind of efficacious power aspects of spirituality that are happening individually. So whether you're charismatic, whether you're, a, I would say, a true Reformed Christian, whatever, doctrines like effectual calling, where does that play into this kid's life? You know, doctrines like uh, uh, genuine conversion, which is effectual calling for a person. And, and we're going to read some stuff in a minute about who should do it from our confession. And what I'll do is I'll really address that for us. Say, look, let's, tell me what you're afraid of here. Just let's, let's be honest. Because I think there may be some real legitimate fears that I would concede with you. What are you afraid of? Let them talk. Let them tell you. And you will probably be encouraged. Say, so, yeah, man. Thank God you are concerned for that. I'm concerned for that too. In fact, I'm going to show you where our confession is concerned with it. Look at what our confession says about effectual calling. Look at what our confession says. So then that's when I would then start part two is to say, well, first of all, we would want to make the case that there's never been a time in redemptive history where there wasn't a converting ordinance and a uh, renewal ordinance or confirming ordinance. That is to say, we have a system that's deeply concerned for your problem of inauthenticity. It's one thing to give someone a, a ordinance that is meant to help them be saved. It's another thing to give them an ordinance that is supposed to be a confirmation that they are saved. And our covenant children are not given that until there is a genuine, and the word in our bit, by the way, credible. You know, don't you like that word, Mr. Authenticity Concern? A credible profession of faith. So let's, let's take the authenticity question off the, off the table. We, we are both equally concerned for authenticity. And our system has a system where that's worked right into the methodology. We believe from God. You see? That's really crucial. Look at, and not, in light of that, scroll down a little bit more. And um, oh, where's my little thing? There it is. Where's the one that said a constituent's? There's a little section in here. I'm looking for it. Okay, we're stopping here. Okay, here it is. So notice the way that, so here again, let me just read it. The crucial element then of a covenant renewal as to participate in the sacramental efficacy of the Lord's Supper. Oh, I think you're going to cover this actually, so I don't need to do this quite much. But this is a great, I'll just end here then. Um, unlike baptism, the Lord's Supper is not a converting ordinance, thus administered as a means to conversion. But renewal ordinance is a means of renewing, confirming, I would say as well, that which has already been converted. This then means that the efficacy of the Lord's Supper is tied to it being received by faith. Note, for instance, John 16 and the significance that is placed on faith in order to receive the benefit of eating and drinking. And not going this. And look at our confession here. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper differ. And this is where I'll point a person that's struggling with this. 
And if baptism is to be administered but once with water to be a sign and a seal of our regeneration and engrafting into Christ, and that even to infants, whereas the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our countenance and growth in Him. And notice this underline, and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. This is really, really interesting. Of years. How many years? It doesn't tell you. Every society, our confession reminds us, there's some things you decide based on uh, the, uh, what's that language in chapter 1, section 6? Huh? Um, you, you, I know it's life yeah. of nature. And, uh, well, it's, it's, but no, I'm looking for that language that talks about script. Some things are, are discerned by the uh, society, the, the, the light of nature and, and common society or whatever. When does a kid grow up? When does a kid have the capability of basically discerning for themselves in an independent kind of way, not uninfluenced, by the way, but independent at least, where they can discern in themselves a genuine and saving faith, or what we call in another place, a credible profession of faith. Man, that is a, that is a subjective call. But I will argue, at the very least, it's getting older and older the longer we get from first century. You know, circumstances require you to grow up. You know, uh, consequences to life causes you to grow up. When do children feel those consequences? You were in Jesus' day, you were probably married by the age of 16. Think about that. And maybe having children. You know, in our day, you're not married until you're 30. Maybe. Now, somewhere in there, maturity looks different. And how you get to that place. That's all I'm saying. But we got to be careful because we believe that covenant children are saved. Not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, but we do. Why? I asked you the question, why does sacramentology inform this? Because I don't think nothing happened to that kid, to put it bluntly. I think something happened there. At least that's the presumption. And it might take a real roller coaster ride to get there, but they're going to get there. And I pray for that all the time. We've got some kids in this church right now who went on quite a roller coaster ride who professed faith in Christ and are walking faithfully with the Lord. You know, so so let's let's that's the issue there. Let's change real quickly for the next twenty minutes and that's it. Um, just anecdotally, yeah. on the other side when yeah. when it's memorialistic and when your message to your kids is that you have to wait. So when I went on sabbatical I, I went to different churches around, and it would be amazed. You'd be amazed at how many churches gave either a nonverbal or actually a verbal message that my kids shouldn't be in the service. Mm. I think there was one, but I mean, the music was so loud they had ear ear plugs at the where you, where you entered the service, and actually I had to take my kid out of the service because she was complaining. It was too awful. But no other kids were in the service, mm. and they well, you could be over here for little kids' time. But the message that gets said is that they're not Christians, and they, you know, they're, they don't belong here as part of it. And I think that's yeah. it's huge to be able to say, "No, you're a Christian. I'm going to raise my kids a Christian." Yeah. Well, I'm going to real quickly zip through worship. Um, you're going to have to go back if you haven't read this one, uh, "The Essentials of Covenantal Worship." Um, this is in your website. I've, it's actually the version you're looking at with red all over it. Um, and I want to really request that you read it. 
Okay, um, it's, it's a pretty long little thing, but or skim it, I should say. Because it's really important, there's some things here that you should have already been familiar with if you took uh, our confessional theology class. But it gets a little bit more robust, etc. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm just going to zip through because I want to get to a particular point in this. So if you were to go through it, um, you know, I get the definition of what worship is, um, you know, this dialogical thing, but I talk about challenges. You are naturally challenged in worship, i.e. the sin nature. We're morally challenged, which is related to that. Or naturally means that we're not, you know, that we, we're creatures. And we have limitations to the glory, you know, discerning and understanding and experiencing. The moral, of course, is that we're sinners. And it goes through that. The cultural challenge is where I want to really emphasize that worship, by its very nature, is upside down of what we call humanistic uh, cultural humanism. I mean, it's just upside down. Everything about worship wants you to just go upside down. So don't be surprised that it is upstream for you to invite your friends to the church. Now, if God, the Holy Spirit, is at work in their life, it's it's going to be efficacious unto salvation for them. But if the Spirit is not at work, it's going to be just like I can't believe this. You know, I'm, you know, they're just not prepared for it. And you don't know who the Holy Spirit's at work in, so you bring them on. So anyway, again, there's some really good stuff here uh, from Marvin. The cultural narcissism, I talk about it, how that affects our hymnology, cultural idols, the, the culture of stimulus response, um, and how that affects worship, the idol of efficiency, how that affects worship, the idol of consumerism, the idol of narcissism, etc., etc., etc. See, read through it. And next time we get together, if you have something, you can ask a question about it. We're hermeneutically challenged. Um, the fact is, it's, it's you know, uh, it's hard to go into Scripture and to do all the uh, work that you need to do to discern what a biblical worship service is. And so I talk about that. And we're worship war uh, challenged. And by that, I particularly uh, beware, and I almost want to slow down here, is the way in which I hear so many dichotomies that do parrot covenantalism versus worship, how I can root them in the covenant temple trajectories. You know, um, aesthetics, that's temple, flesh, versus worship. Really? You know, um, uplifting versus worship. Really? It can be uplifting, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uplifting. You see what I mean? Um, Seeker-sensitive versus believer worship. Bad dichotomies, both in. Um, So you can kind of play around with some of those. Uh, I give a definition of worship here. See, I got this all ready for you to read, so you at least make sure. We talk about um, the rhythmic, dialogical elements of worship in this thing. This idea that God speaks, we amen. That's where that's going to come out. Um, the basics, um, starting with what we've talked about. We've talked a lot about it today, but this whole idea of presence. I mean, that changes everything. We've already talked about it. Mystery manners, paper. Um, but do read over it. You know, we talk about Christ's presence as prophet, priest, and king, and locating that in the various movements. Um, by the way, it's not that there's a one part of the service is prophet, one part of the service is priest, one part of the there is king. It's that every service is prophet, perfect, and king. Every sermon is a prophetic, priestly, kingly activity. Every sacrament is a priestly. They're all in there. You're giving you know words of institution, prophetic, if you will, examining the table. You're you're under the authority of the session. That's kingly. You're you're literally presenting that which is the mediatorial presence of Christ. That's priestly in this intermediary way. And so uh, it's all there, but we at least put on areas here that, that you may... So I don't like that section is what I'm saying, but at least it gets you thinking. 
Um, it's a community, a covenant event. Kevin and I were talking about this earlier. Read through that. But this gets significant. Um, at any point, that makes a worship service very different from what I'd call entertainment media. Because the, the, the vital element of worship is who? The people and God. God and people. It is a temple service. It isn't an entertainment event where we're sitting back passively and there's somebody singing for us. There's someone worshiping for us. And we're just kind of being inspired by it. That is not covenantal worship. You know, it's a good concert. I'm all for good concerts. Do it on Friday. Bring your non-Christian friends and maybe they'll be brought to Christ, but they won't be in Christ doing that event. They will be in Christ on Sunday morning. That's huge. Hope you see that. That's going to affect the way you lead hymns. That's going to affect the way you do prayers. That's going to affect the way you even preach. Though there's definitely a... There, when I was coming up, there was this real movement to get all the, the um, you know, second person plural into your sermon. You, 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 you. I disagree with that. I agree with half of it. <laughs> There's got to be a you, 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 you element to it. But there can also be a we, 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 we element insofar as the people are mystically being united to the Word of God in this dialogical way. So I can speak for the people even as the people God is speaking for God. And so I'm speaking for God, speaking for the people, bringing them together. Now how do you speak for the people? You know, now I know what you're thinking, Chris. You know, I just made a point, right? I know what you're thinking. If I'm you, Chris, I'm over here thinking, you know, that, that's a bunch of baloney. See, Chris just got into the sermon. I might not say Chris. I might say some of you were thinking this. That's that's an important point. But you're not. But it's not being lost that God is speaking to that point, and then that point is wrestling with that point, and ultimately I'm bringing them hopefully to an amen, a confession of faith. Where Chris, if I were targeting Chris, I wouldn't do a public court. Is going to come to the point. Yes, thus saith the Lord. I see it. The Lord is speaking to me. Amen. Um, and so it is a dialogical event, even there. But, so I talk about that. That's a very important point. I don't know if you're going to bring that in more to what you're going to say later. Um, but I have a pretty long segment here on it, so you might want to read it. It has a lot to do with you music guys and you liturgical guys here, this stuff right here especially. By the way, uh, this is going to be a springboard, which is what I intended to be, to talk about uh, forms. And what forms do we do when? Because the people should be there. In the service, the people, the flesh, the social cultural flesh should be there. Which I'll go ahead and springboard now for 15 minutes. Um, uh, we'll go the, the vocations of service. This is stuff we talk a lot about. What is essential for good corporate service? One, it needs to be regulated. You should know the regular principle very well. And it's not a regular principle of worship, it's a regular principle of faith and practice, period. It's everything. But you should be familiar with that term. We did it in great length. But remember, the term is as much a, it's, it's, in the way it's, where it shows up in its most robust form. Does anybody know where? There are two chapters. Where are they? In our confession. Anybody guess? They show up in the, cha- on the chapter on, on the word, the, the, the scripture. Christian freedom, good. And the liberty of, of, of Christian liberty. See, worship is meant. I mean, regular principle is meant both to preserve the exclusive crown rights of Jesus Christ over his church. So we're not going to impose on anyone anything but that which Christ has imposed, or that's bind, their conscience. 
So why in worship, the principle would be, would be translated that you can do nothing in worship except that which Christ has prescribed to do, albeit in the flesh of the people, which becomes more of the issue. So the elements, there's no elements you can do in worship except that which Christ has prescribed by good and necessary to do. Why would that be true in worship? Look, tell me something about worship that would make that necessary. Is, is worship for a Christian a voluntary act? Because it's been commanded. It's been commanded. you got to be there, Christian. So the moment you got to be there, you got to regulate what you do so that I am not binding your conscience while you're there to do that which Christ is not bound to do. Now, Friday night, we had an unsad. I keep going back to that one. Are you commanded to drink beer at a pub with, with uh, Christians and unchristians on Friday? Some of you might think you're not commanded. Now, if, or some of you might think that's contrary to Scripture. So then the session made a bad mistake because we shouldn't do it if it's contrary to Scripture. But if we find that it's, it's useful towards accomplishing the mission of our church to reach our community and done in a certain way, remember we only give one ticket, etc., etc., et um, uh, then we would say we could do it, but, but if you don't show up, I should not look at you and say, you're not a very good Christian, or even imply it. Now, we've got to be careful in this. You know, um, I might say about Sunday school. Is Scripture, that you can, you can get close to Sunday school. Clearly, Scripture commands that we learn and meditate on the Word of God, and there would be a lot of stuff there that can say, well, how else are we going to do it than this? And what better way to do it? But at the end of the day, if you don't show up for Scripture, I will say to you, you're stupid. I will. I can say, that's just stupid. You're missing opportunities here for you to grow in, in the, the knowledge of God. But I'm not going to say you're sinning. And I'm not necessarily going to say you're stupid, okay? <laughs> a little hyperbole. You just fake it. Uh, well, no, 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 because I, even then I might have to be careful. You know, this is another thing which we can get in later, maybe, but, you know, um, it's very, very important that you just don't go there. You just, you know, there's never a time for you to judge another brother or sister. Um, and just, you don't know their circumstances. You don't know what they're dealing with. You have no clue, you know, what, what happened last night. Yeah, what I've learned is that there's so many circumstances that happen in people's lives that if you knew them, you would understand, you know. And do that to your pastors too, by the way. You know, just because they work here doesn't mean they're supposed to come to everything. And, uh, you know, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's an ouchy subject for some of us. Because, um, you, you know, you come in and that's almost the first thing someone says. We didn't see you there, you know, and ouch. But I do have a wife and a kid, maybe something's going on, and it just wasn't really my job description necessarily to be there. So it's all right. Um, so regulated, important. Um, yeah, I need to get here quick. Go through this. Um, let's stop. It, let's let's have a couple minutes to talk then about uh, the edifying. Again, I go through all this stuff. Vernacular sensitive and the whole issue of form, uh, and that's the word directed. Now that's a very important chapter. There's another paper that I put in your your thing. Um, this is what it is. Uh, and it's this whole issue of, of how to, how do we do for so Why don't you help us, because I know this is a question you had. Get, help them frame the question you're hoping we'll, we'll cover here. Me, right? Yeah. My question is, how do you determine or diagnose, not that it's an illness, I shouldn't use the word diagnose, how do you determine, how do you like tease out and, uh, the, the, what typifies the flesh of the people? Good. And what do you think the answer is? Because I, <laughs> I know it's a question you have, a legitimate it's question. So tell me how you've wrestled with week it. Week to week question yeah. that I have. Yeah. Um, uh, 
And how do I, how do I... Yeah, how do you, just tell me what you think are some of the, maybe you don't have to tell me how you make the decision, so to say, but yeah, what's the process you think you go through to make that decision? Because um, you're, you're seeming to answer it in a way that concedes that it should be the flesh of the people. Yes. yes. Kind of, maybe? Oh. Not the flesh of the global One Holy Catholic Church? Oh, uh. How local should it be? How global should it be? Why are you making it much harder? Uh, no, I'm going after you here, aren't I? Uh, yeah, so I guess I've been concerned with um, the local church. In a sacramental way, I guess that seems to jive yeah. with what we're doing today. Um, <laughs> I, my mind could be open on that. Um, no, no, it's, but, it's good. Uh, I guess, I guess I think of people individually. So there's just there's just so many facets. I mean, every person in the congregation represents a different facet of what shapes the flesh of this congregation, and so um, I guess for me, I try to. Th- think through different people and be sort of cycling through in my mind different people in terms of how I know them as to what I think what they've expressed or what I think they would express about what would be of their flesh Um, but it it has to be a lot of cycling through a lot of people and Mm -hmm. for me the challenge is it doesn't necessarily come naturally for me to like intuit that about people Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like I need like a like a yeah. Something I can read to know, you know? Well, yeah. So let's answer, let's try to answer the question. So the, the first handout that I gave you, one of the characteristics of a, of a covenantal service uses the word, it's, it's a direct, the forms are directed by Scripture. So they're not prescribed, they're not, but they're directed. No, they're, in other words, we don't subscribe to forms. We don't subscribe to the, the, the idea that pastors should wear robes. That's not something we subscribe to. Remember that conversation last time when we did confessional theology? So I'm just trying to make sure you remember what subscription means. That means we're, we're proclaiming that by good and essay inference is that which God requires us to do in worship. We're not prescribing it. That was the big issue in Westminster is how, you know, uh, they were concerned about form worship, i.e. forms coming from England or Rome or wherever, that every congregation was to use a book of common prayer. They were adamantly opposed to a book of common prayer. Because it just made mere readers of those who were supposed to be spirit-filled, as they said. They called it form worship. Now, they would have no problem with the book of common prayer if it were changed into a template of sorts that could be useful for the pastor or liturgical leader to utilize as a Directive for things that you can do and say vis-a-vis um, your worship. Um, I.e., uh, so we, we have, if you've noticed the way we've done, um, and so this is very important. So the directory principle is was to me the most one of the most brilliant things that happened out of a thing. Our book of church order and the sections on worship, you'll notice, is a directory. What it does is it starts with, so here's your step one, directed. Step one, what are the uh, means or elements of, of worship? What are the things that are prescribed, that we subscribe to, that are wor- that, that should be in worship? The, the movements and what we do in those movements, that kind of stuff. What are they? Two, is make sh- and, and in that, you make sure you understand the theological purpose, intent, 
what are those movements meant to accomplish? What is the what is the theology that's being permitted? What's the message, if you will, that comes through that element? What's the message? That's that's number two. This is uh, this is how you. I'm learning you steps for the directory principle. What is scripture prescribed? Two. What is the intended use of those prescriptions in Scripture? What is the Lord's Supper supposed to communicate? What's the message, if you will, vis-a-vis and what it should be accomplishing? Three, what's the media best suited to adorn the message? And the word media is by necessity, I won't go into sociology of media, but it's necessarily the vernacular. It's necessarily... What is the way in which you would frame this in, in the in the so as the people would be most readily able to discern the message and intent of this and experience the intent of this message? All right? So millions of examples here, and they can be as different as the kind of people coming to your church in a particular location. So for instance, I'll give you one. In the first service we wear a robe, in the second service we don't. That's a media thing. Okay, In the first service, we are doing that in a way that is directed towards generally either, this is where it all got started many years ago, because we didn't start off wearing robes, by the way. But we, we did it because we kept discerning that there were many broad evangelicals who had come out of personality-driven churches or... There were some Roman Catholics who had come out of context where for them it was hard. Now, there, we've had some other kind of Roman Catholics come that it was hard to see the, 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 the robe a little bit. But for some, it was hard for them who had come out of a liturgical tradition with robes to be able to take the worship in its sacredness and seriousness. And In other words, what we were doing is for those who come out of a media context that either is too casual about service so that they could not see the, the sacredness of the worship and the word that is not attached to the man or person but is attached to the office or those who would not see it for opposite reasons we felt that we needed to have that context that to us, and it was a, it's a total judgment call I cannot tell you how much it's a judgment call tons of Theology about the sacred, what we're trying to do in worship, how there should be a sacred experience, we're on holy ground, you know, the role of the pastor is the world of office, not person. There's a lot of theology that informs. That's that step two part. What's the meaning of this event, the preaching event? But at the end of the day, who are the particular people locally coming to this church and what is the media that they most need to accomplish the message of the sermon? And we judged for that a particular community that a, a rope needed to be done. Then we turned right around about ten years later and we started the local service. And we found a very opposite effect. That we were targeting some people who viewed, that came from worlds that could not get beyond the liturgical gown, if you will, insofar as it directed them not to the office, but to the oppressive uh, uh, you know, not means of grace sorts of that they had never encountered Christ in a row before, and when and they had also never encountered they, that row got in the way, if you will, it was too noisy. And so we valued that judgment call. 
So it's very subjective, and it really gets down to the old-fashioned, you got to know your people. You really got to know your people. And you got to listen to them. Lots. Listen to them. Hear how they're responding. And then and we, we started a regular principle principle here, directory. The directory principle could be summed up like this. Nothing to compel, nothing to repel, save Christ. Now, put that together in your mind. Nothing to compel. That's the regular principle. Mm. Nothing to repel. That's the directory principle. Nothing to compel. We're not going to do say do or say anything to bring you to Christ except that which is really Christ and what he really said. And if you don't like Christ, that's tough luck. We're not going to add to him or take away from him. On the other hand, if it's not inherently and ontologically Christ to wear a robe or not wear a robe, we got a choice here. Don't do something that makes them repel. Why would I lose Christ for the sake of a robe? That's what Paul, where would I go for that principle? Romans 14. You got to know your people. Some of you people, you have a place where you know that food's offered to idols, is being offered to nothing that doesn't exist. It's never been an issue for you. It doesn't bring back horrible memories, etc., etc., etc. Therefore, you can eat the heck out of that food, and it's probably pretty good. For those though that this draws, draws, you know, makes you encounter oppression in your life, encounters things that you've been leaving, or maybe you don't really have an understanding of idolatry yet, and why there aren't really idols, maybe there really are, and therefore it's been contaminated, blah blah blah. Don't eat it. It's a form thing. It's a form thing. You see? Um, that's how you do it. That's the principle. Now you could go. We we had probably the largest discussion we had of these three principles was with the. Uh, with, with, well, it's probably the music. That's probably the ongoing largest. It's always music because music is so powerful. So it's understandable. And it's also, it was also that pain. And, you know, how can we justify, uh, you know, 130 or whatever it was, $1,000 uh, for a painting? And we had to really think about that. And we all thought it. I mean, we were all asking the question. What do we need in, in that place to make it a sacred place? Who are the people here? One of the things that really plays out in music and in our spirituality here, at least CPC 135, is that this is a congregation that is very global. I've said this to the musicians over and over. I just keep pushing. You know, I want to see as much as, as much of a global. I'd love to see globalized music. Why? Because people are are on a given Sunday in Ireland. They're in, in this kind of place. They're moving around. They're in the south. They're in the north. They're all these places. That's part of their flesh. And so let's find a global component to their flesh in this service. You know, we have a, a, a strong Asian, uh, Pan-Asian community. And, and the eastern block of that community, tend, their, their chancel spaces, if they become Christian, tend to be influenced by the ascension. And by transubstantiation, if not that. Whereas the West is very much a forensics-focused versus kind of temple-focused spirituality. Nestorius took them that way, and Cyril took them this way. And all of a sudden you have a very cross-centered spirituality. Well, let's get them both in there. You see, there are some things going on there. And we wanted something that created an aesthetic... We believe in aesthetics, media. When you walk in the room, we want you to have a feeling. And a feeling that we think will most accommodate what's happening in that room which is a powerful, sacred event, we believe, in the, in the flesh of the people. So how do you do all that in, in terms of the way we decorate? By the way, one of the things we need to do, just because they're falling apart, is those chairs. I don't know who's in charge of that here. Those chairs up in the chancellor's service? Yeah. 
Man, they are, man, I'm, it's, it's a miracle I haven't kicked, died up there. One leg is just literally sitting there. And, and, but, but when we do, I think we need to review the, the aesthetics of those chairs. They look like a Victorian living room. And I don't think that's our people. Okay, so let's, let's think about that. It needs to be more like a throne. Definitely. <laughs> Medieval, baby. Yeah. i got to stop because it's now, uh, he's going to have a, an hour and 15 minutes, I believe. Uh, take five minutes. But that's, well, I know that wasn't enough. You want to, one follow-up. Go ahead. Music, it's the same thing. And we call it a, one of the things I would, I believe though, back to this, I should have said maybe there's another principle. How do we define our people? Well, I want to define them as who they are. They, they, they're local travelers, many of them at least. But let's also, don't forget, they're local in this community. And therefore, um, what do we have in this? You have generational differences. So I know that, that uh, it was interesting. The other day, I think it was you, we were talking about something. And I kind of said, yeah. He said something that was a typical boomer thing to say about music or whatever it was. And because I'm so engaged with the millennials here, it's more mixed than you think. Well, there's a, well, whatever. But it was just so. Yeah, it probably was. I'm not. No, I didn't mean to put him in a box. That's not my point. Because he's right. He's right. No, I'm just saying it's right. But my point was is that he's right. But we. I should have said that because now you don't know. I'd have to explain part where I want. But it was a very good conversation. It was nothing ever. But then I just made the comment. Yeah, that would exactly be the way that you know the the forty somethings would say it. But if you talk to the 40s up under, 30s and under people, they'd have almost the exact opposite statement. And we, we, we believe that they both live in this local area here. We don't want the church for the young and the church for the old necessarily. Okay, so we've got to be careful about that. Blend, so we call it a blended service. And that came out of the blended nature of our congregation. And you do it well. Well, thank you. We do need to hear that. Yeah. I guess, you have a, I guess the follow-up okay. then is um, is that the blend, if I'm understanding correctly, I know it's a lot, you know, but the blend does come from from taking things that were affirming from the different aspects like, of the congregation and and not. Um, it doesn't sound like it's ever, this isn't of this aspect of the congregation, but we think they need it, so we're... Yeah, I, I, not in a form way. I can't, yeah. see, that would be to prescribe a form. Yeah. That would be to violate the regular principle in a major way. That's exactly what's happening in the Reformation that they were really upset about. All you have to say, though, is, so we have people that are somewhat classically trained, somewhat... I'm, you know, not you know, you, you just got a blend here, and so let's reflect that blend. The one thing I would want to say is remember in the directory principle, though. Here's one of the unique things about globalism and for, and culture. It just happens that British colonialism had a huge impact on evangelism globally. So it's probably true that while it is inherently a form to seeing holy, 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 or whatever. It's, it, you're, you're singing words that all universally hopefully could... That's, the words aren't forms. The way you sing it, what sounds you sing it to, all that's a form. It just happens that globalization, vis-a-vis British imperialism, vis-a-vis evangelism, and the British came in, through, in with and through the British imperialism, it just happens as a historical uh, coincidence that you go to Brazil or you go to Africa and you may actually be singing Crown Him with Many Crowns or at least something like uh, Amazing Grace. And you may even be singing it to the tune of that particular British 
origination. But there's, it, but right now I can tell you because of what we're doing with the Zambian Church, and I'm pretty involved with them now on a very monthly basis. Uh, we're we're having we're doing an online confessional study together with their core group. Um, I can tell you that there is a huge anti-colonial pushback going on in Africa right now. And they're really trying to describe themselves as the African church. You'll see a lot of the African church of, the African church of. And when you see that, that is code word for they are breaking from the colonial background. And the big crisis we're dealing with them is, and this is why we've been perfect for them, is helping them do that without what where the big struggle is. This has been huge. Y'all pray for these conversations every month, man. It's discerning what is form and what is element in that great. Well, we, we blacks, we worship, you know, dreams are a big part of our worship service. You know, you, you know that was a conversation we had. It's a loving conversation. And boy, man, I'm rolling up some serious sleeves here. You know, I'm going, okay, we got some work to do. When do I do it? Is this the right time? But somewhere we're going to talk about, no, that's not African. That's pagan. You know, I'm going to make some distinctions. Or if you're going to do dreams, you're going to do it this way, not that way. I ate some of the word of God, and it becomes just an act of providence. That's it. It's not a revelatory event. There's a lot of nuances you start to play with on this stuff. But so that's the key here. So with that mindset, though, it's true that you're not quite so unblended if you do, in some certain places, engage globally some of those songs that are globally still British-sounding. And they're good songs. And, they, and they're also relevant songs for us because many of us buried our dead with those songs. And those are precious to us. So I'm not, we're not anti-old people or, or, or I'm putting myself in the category, or we're not anti, uh, 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 not, not old people, but also classically trained or this kind of culture background, this kind of culture background. We're just saying we're going to make sure that people encounter the flesh of Christ that's their flesh. That's different than saying we're going to entertain them. And that's different than saying we're going to, you know, okay, I'm going to give, I want to make sure he has about an hour and at least 10 minutes, so take a five minute break. The only thing that I would add yeah. to what you've been saying, what I'm hearing you say, is that it's also not just serving the congregation, but the people who aren't here, but who live in this general area as well. So we might encounter a situation where we have no college students and say, well, why would we need to have that type of music? There's no college that's students. Right. That's just an example. I'm not saying. Yeah, why aren't they there? If, if but, we have nothing to repel, repel. Yeah, but so like, it's not just a matter of saying what's the flesh of the people actually here. Yeah, well, that's really important. I just had a conversation with somebody who says, "Well, everybody's sort of fine with this type of coffee." It's like, well, maybe maybe you're not asking everybody to go there, or maybe that's not you know broadening out. So there, there's there's a sense in which uh, being able to anticipate who's in the radius of where we're drawing. And what's really, that's a really important observation. Thank you, Kevin, for bringing that up. Because it's, in fact, I'd say it's even simple to not consider the people who are not here. Because remember, we have a parish here. The, the principle that we said earlier is that this church should, as much as humanly possible, reflect the flesh of our parish. How do you define our parish? This happens to be a center city church, which means we have both the suburbs and the herbs or whatever. It's not an inner city church, if you will. It's a center city. And so, yeah, it's a pretty, it's a broad swath. That's why, again, blended. But it's really important. It's part of what we've been doing, and Goville's an expression of that, is there comes a time when you can't blend enough. We couldn't blend enough to have the Hill Church in this, in this congregation. Couldn't do it. 
they would not have the power of the fullness of Christ in their flesh. Here. The hegemony, that's a social term, that is uh, social uh, dominance, if you will, social control, whatever you want to say. The hegemony of our church was such that it would have been impossible for seven, eight, nine people to come here, or 20 people, and to feel and to experience the media of Christ's flesh in their flesh. They would have heard the right doctrines. And it's interesting that many of them came and started because they loved the preaching. You heard the same thing by Kevin, by the way, uh, when he was here about a month ago. Remember that when he said he went to uh, 10th Press? He just loved the doctrine. The gospel was there, but the flesh was not there. <laughs> and it was hard. He constantly had to fight to overcome what tempted him to rebel, not to repel, from that church. Because, but he at least had the astuteness to know that he and his family needed to hear the gospel, the Reformed gospel as he was hearing it. And so that was really huge. And now he's in a church that I think would be more what is his flesh. And he's pastoring it. <laughs> you see, so that, Kevin's point is extremely important. That you do, you know, and we do everything we do. It's like, why, why aren't they here? What are we doing wrong that doesn't make this place a safe place for them to be here? Whether it's spiritual, whether it's moral, whether it's... But it's always nothing to compel, nothing to repel, say Christ. That is the most helpful phrase I know to your question. I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. One is called confusing high church and high gospel. It was, say, conflating the two. And then the second one is a case study that uh, I, I want us to go through, um, which will be, uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to save time for that, uh, for us to, to talk about some practical, what does this actually look like if we are in leadership, uh, whether on the session or advising the session or um, counseling somebody in our, our group, what, what are these, uh, what are the practical Outworkings of this, even as we think about our own faith or our own families. So let me just start out by, uh, if you if you like what we've been talking about with sacramental, <laughs> uh, why do you why do you like it in contrast to what you may have heard in general broad evangelicalism? What's what's the draw about it? The fact that it's all connected. It's not. Okay. It's separate compartments. I mean, it's a whole picture. Okay. All right. Co- connected to what else? Well, I mean, the the worship and the the uh, sac the sacraments. Okay. The, I mean, it's it's. Okay. Good. It's total. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. There's a connectedness to it. What others? I mean, as far as, far as this spirituality. And especially I'm thinking in contrast to a broader evangelical, American evangelical context, what's what's appeal what's some of the appeal to it? Maybe if it's not appealing to you, you can say what's strange about it. Well it's not driven by people or individuals. Yeah. The fact that it's right. It makes it more trustworthy to me yeah. that it's not thought up by or, or you know invented by us or a particular yeah. pastor or it's, it's God driven. Yeah, so it sticks away from personality driven. It doesn't have the populism of other movements, and not not hyper individualistic. You know. It's nice to understand there's significance to the sacraments rather than just sort of ritual or just memorial or just some random things that Jesus said that we've, we've sort of been continuing to do. Yeah, I think the sealed part. Yeah. Yeah. Really, that's very different than 
how I was raised. Yeah. And you see the spiritual benefits to it and the, the goodness of it. And all of those things, I think, are really healthy and good. Um, but I want to talk about uh, a, uh, a movement that has cropped up within the reform camp that uh, has taken this in a direction that I think um, missteps in a harmful way spiritually. And one which, if we can hear it, we'll start resonating with and say, yes, this is, this is really, amen, from what you're saying to a lot of it, but also um, some conclusions that might seem natural to draw, but dangerous to draw um, from this. So let me just, uh, you know, I, I've wrote this as a paper, but um, I, I want to walk through a little bit of um, the argument here. I'm going to talk about a current trend in Reformed theology and its relevance today, and specifically something called federal vision. Now, um, I'm not saying that that's as hot as it was 15 years ago or even even five years ago, but I think it's still prevalent, um, but probably obscure enough that maybe nobody here has heard of it. Who here has heard of federal vision theology? Okay, so we got two out of this group. And it may not come up, but we've at least experienced in our church where people who have been at least secondarily influenced by it resonate and then lead some other conclusions, or perhaps um, they fall into the same line of reasoning because they've missed some pieces in the thought. Um, I, I start out by saying for a long time Reformed Christians have had an awkward relationship with American evangelicalism. Um, we have this tie-in with the gospel where we, Reformed Christians and, and even American evangelicals, want to promote this gospel of Christ, that Jesus died for our sins as a message. But we've steered away from the individualism and things like dispensationalism, um, very Baptistic, uh, hermeneutic, all things that we sort of um, talked about a little bit today, but the denying the efficacy of the sacraments, a low view of the church, are all things that have made this relationship with the, the Reformed tradition and the uh, general evangelicalism in America a little bit awkward. And so if you've been from that evangelical context and you come into this church, you're like, wow, they're talking a lot about the church. That's strange. Or they're talking a lot about the sacraments. That's, that's different. Some people eat that up and think, that's, that's great. Um, recently, there's been one segment of the Reformed community who has so sought to, I think, attack these errors in broad even evangelicalism um, that they have um, made a lot of conclusions that we need to be wary about. Uh, federal vision theology has a lot in it that we would con commend. They take sacraments uh, seriously, the church, covenant, they see a unity in scripture, from Old Testament to New, that we would want to say amen rather than dividing up the testaments or looking at, at a dispensational hermeneutic. Um, and while we want to agree with some of their critique, um, we need to be careful, especially because of the similarities that are there with, with our church. Um, and to be clear, um, if somebody was coming to our church who would promote this theology, we're not going to excommunicate them. This is not at the level of heresy, so I'm not here giving you guys a warning that there's this, this heresy floating out there, but at least it's something that I think 
uh, we should pay attention to, and it's going to affect our relationship, especially when we think about um, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So, um, page two, this idea of covenant objectivity. Covenant objectivity is the heart of federal vision. And when I use the term federal vision as a, as a description, um, I have to throw in the qualification that they're not all the same and there's different theologians and churches that might pick and choose, but I want to get broad, broad enough to actually say there's some substance here. Douglas Wilson, in um, I mean, some of you guys know Doug Wilson, he will say some good things, but this is where I think he's getting to some dangerous things. He says, membership in the Christian faith is objective. It can be photographed and fingerprinted. Well, as he will describe, by the signs and seals of the covenant. By your entry into a covenant and by your continuance in the covenant. Now, let's be sympathetic with him. Let's help him. Let's try to understand what he's getting at. Why would he say, before you get the critique, let's get to, to trying to get on the same page. Why would he say that? Especially when he's critiquing broader evangelicalism that wants to say conversion is what? What's, if, you go, if you go outside of, you know, if you parachurch Christianity or maybe your Southern Baptist church or your Bible church or whatever, or even just your friends who are Christians who don't go to church, what are they going to say conversion is? And your Christianity. It's just in my heart, in my personal Yeah, you and that. Jesus, right? Yeah. And what, what has made you a Christian? Yeah, you chose Jesus, and you had this conversion experience. Part of that we're going to say, yeah, we kind of like, but we're going to say, rightly, whoa, that's dangerous and scary. And I don't know if I want to say that just because somebody had a religious experience, even if they use the terms Jesus and, and have faith in Jesus, that they're actually a Christian. There's a lot of dangerous things about saying that. So you can, you know, why is why does... Then Wilson want to say that the covenant defines the terms for Christianity and salvation. And that the signs and seals of the covenant, particularly <clears throat> entering in baptism. God is the primary. Yeah, right. And God set this up. He's designed it. They looks they looks they kind of look like there's some objectivity. Um, federal vision advocates dislike the distinction between the visible and invisible church, strongly asserting that we can speak, we can only speak of the visible church. Because of this, some would refer to those who are baptized as elect. What, quickly, what is the, the distinction between visible and invisible church? Have you, you guys have all gotten that, I think, at one point or another. How would you say that? What, what would the invisible church look like? You can't see it. You can't see it. <laughs> what do we... Infallible. Infallible, okay. All right, infallible. They are the Christians. And who are they? Individually, particularly? We can't say, because we, we don't have the goggles 
to put on to look at the and say, okay, you're the elect. What is the visible church is those who profess faith and have joined themselves. Sure. So they, they want to say, let's remove all those qualifications and distinctions and just talk about the visible. One could, however, lose their... So in that view, if you're a member of a church, if you were baptized and entered into it, then you could lose, objectively, their Christian status. Those are those who are in covenant, um, but should not be. These, these they would identify as covenant breakers. Wilson says there is no nominal Christians, um, but there are wicked and faithless Christians. At one point he calls them snakes and says certain fellow Christians are to be considered our mortal enemies. You see what he's doing? When you, when you combine covenant and uh, and conversion to such a degree, or you, you eliminate invisible church and just talk about visible church, and you see that your desire for covenant purity in that, how then do you treat discipline cases? And how how then do you see treat somebody who is is showing signs of falling away or of sinning in your church. What's Wilson going to say? Well, I don't know that he's going to look back and see them as, you know, like have a heart like Christ when he looked over the city and left. He might, I don't know. He's going to want to draw. So, I'm not getting to his motives, but he's going to want to, it seems as though he's going to want to clarify the question for them. Rather than leaving it ambiguous, he's going to say, let's push this. You're either going to get on board and, and turn back into the covenant, or we're going to kick you out of the covenant. And it could come from, like, for him in that moment, it might be like, obviously he wants people to be Christians. So he's, he, his sympathies would be in that direction. So I can imagine kind of framing it in like a, like, uh, in, in that way, like, instead of making it a when I say, here's what, here are the outward, here's the objective things that you need to be a Christian. So you can do these things. Like, it's yeah. great. It doesn't, isn't it kind of, I mean, is that, because wouldn't he want people to do those things? Yeah, I, yeah, I, you know, so I'm, I'm, the book that he's, he's really, he's trying to attack, and again, remember, his, the way his enemies, who he is, he's fighting with is really important to understand. He's looking at general broad evangelicalism. And he's saying that his book is called uh, "Not Reformed Enough," I think, or something like that. But but it's really saying, "Hey, let's let's um, a reformed is not enough." He's like, "Let's let's take these principles and let's start applying it to how we understand church." But I think he's getting covenant. He's going too far into this high church and high gospel to where they actually are the same thing. Um, the gospel is defined by the outward, by the visible, by the covenant, and so he's saying that if you're if you're rebelling against the if the the gospel, if you show signs that you're drifting from it, well then, um, we should clarify your covenantal status and have some sanctions here. What are sanctions? Covenant curses and blessings sound like. It's biblical, right? 
in the Old Testament, right? But it's no, and that's the idea that the the covenant is is uh, is that's why the second section misunderstanding the covenant. The underlying interpretive error that propagates federal vision theology is their misunderstanding of the covenant. Their view of covenant treats it like a club or an organization to which one can become a member. One must then maintain membership or risk losing their covenant status. As a starting point, T. David Gordon offers this helpful observation. One can be a party to a covenant, but uh, one is not in a covenant. Yeah. Um, these sentences, like certain fellow Christians are to be considered our mortal enemies. Yeah. What it really means is they're not Christians. Yeah. Right? So he's going to say he's going to say that. By the picture of the covenant, we are calling them Christians, but we really need to define them out of the covenant. We need to, yes, he's not going to make, again, because he's losing the, the invisible church distinction, he's going to say, we need to do the, we need to execute a lawsuit against them and get them out of the covenant because there are enemies. I don't see how that makes any sense unless you accept the division yeah, yeah. between the visible and the invisible church. Yeah. The, Unlo- unless you think you can lose your, your Christianity, to say you're Christianity. The argument doesn't even hold together. The ter- it, It's irrational. It's completely illogical. <laughs> like, on its own terms is my point. Yeah, yeah. It makes no sense. Well, his... Uh, there's a lot in his book that makes me scratch my head. Um, I don't I don't quite understand his his um, his disposition towards a lot of that. But he's gonna to want to say that your your covenant status is determinative of your standing before God. If I could even put those words in that context. Um, if you show yourself to be faithless, then you need to be in some ways removed from this covenant. So basically what you're saying is this this is just a failed attempt to keep separate the visible and invisible church. That's what he's trying to is trying to do. But like our point is, is this is a total failure. I would I would that's where we're gonna wind up, yeah. Yeah. There's some maybe you can does it this reminisce back to the Dantist controversy of the pure church thing. In other words Maybe the way that Douglas would uh, you know, understand this, and I haven't read his books, so you can tell me, but, but to your point, Clay, there is no, uh, the church by its very definition is the pure church. There is no, like, in, there is no, in some ways, visible church by the way the Reformation would define it as fallible. It's to be an infallible church, and therefore, if someone is a member of a visible church, but shows fallibility, if you will, shows some kind of, you know, then they must get out. They, yeah. We cannot have a, that would be to have a church that by definition is different from what is, is in reality doing. Yeah. So it's, so the Donald's controversy would have gone back and said that, look, we define the church by definition as the pure church. And therefore, if someone shows themselves impure, they're out. You see? Well, that's all of us. Well, well, but... But see, this is the issue. Yeah. Go, but that's a subjective way of saying us. His earlier point is that they're defining you, the Christian, as an objective covenant keeper. As long as you keep covenant objectively, vis-a-vis the... Yeah. 
Yeah. Your fidelity to the covenant is what keeps you in. So then it's like the recreation of the Roman Catholic error of you just do this and that, you're good. See you later. That's that's what you know, that's why and many of them will resonate with Roman Catholicism. Is that with an evangelical zeal yes. that makes yeah. it pretty yeah. right. dangerous. And so imagine yeah. one of your children who is a covenant child now, and some of these folks, most of them I think, have paedo communion. In, in that's where we're going, yeah. yeah. But imagine now your child is going through a season of struggle because they, you know, they were, they were now, I mean, imagine that language directed to your child who's 10 years old or 12 years old who's encountering his, his puberty or his, you know, whatever else is going on. And there's no room there for, there's no more and more sanctification language here. It's just all so objectively focused that you're in, you're out, you're evil, you're, you're good. It's just extremely, you know, it takes out all the ambiguity, which is exactly what makes it attractive, obviously. It's, it's similar to why the Muslim... And some, I know, I don't, I'm not trying to say they're trying to be Muslim, but it's interesting that Islam, almost universally, when, when uh, missiologists study it and say, why is it so successful? It's because it is, precisely because it is so black and white. It's so easy to know if you're a faithful Muslim or not. If you do these prayers, if you do these four things, you are Muslim. I mean, again, listen to that quote from Wilson. Membership in the Christian faith is objective. They want objectivity. It can be photographed and fingerprinted. He wants to undergird He wants to give assurance. He wants to undergird it on really shaky grounds, though. He wants, to, he wants to do it in a way that, on the surface, I think, humanistically, is attractive because... Wow, I don't have to know, am I really putting my faith in Christ? But now I have to, I, I got the church here telling me I'm in good standing. So I have, I have confidence based on that. Of course, the risk is, could they turn around and look at some sin in your life and kick you out? Um, again, he's using terms that seem biblical, but I would argue, um, maybe go back to last week's sermon, this idea in Galatians of the two different covenants. Um, they're focusing, the language of covenant they use often like the Mosaic Covenant. Under the Mosaic Covenant, God did relate to his ethnic national people through a special agreement. This did not annul the previous covenant of grace that was given to Abraham. God's people, even under Moses, were saved by faith alone. So we should understand that as we understand it, as we see it in, in Paul working out. But under the Mosaic Law, there was a two-way covenant that required obedience and conformity and held out blessings and curses. This Mosaic covenant, in actuality, is a reassertion of God's covenant of works to Adam, requiring perfect obedience. Israel could not keep this law. In fact, it continually pointed out their inability to keep it, and it should have always driven them back to this promise that it was by faith. Federal Vision wants to take that same concept of remaining in the covenant and experiencing blessings and curses and now continued into the new covenant um, what must be stressed though is that blessings and curses of the Mosaic covenant administration have this, this worldly implications, not redemptive implications uh, next paragraph down, federal vision advocates confuse the concept of covenant blessings and curses in their effort to affirm greater continuity with the Old Testament people, who are they battling against here? Dispensationalists. They're, they see dispensationalists as such an error. They want to say, no, we, we, God's made these promises and these covenants, 
and it spans. This God's one, His one plan, and they like that continuity. And we want to say Amen to a lot of continuity, but we, if we don't understand this distinction, then we're going to miss the point of Galatians and the gospel and the law of grace discontinuity. Yes. Is it worth a brief footnote clarifying what dispensationalism is? Um, yeah, sure. The, the, the idea that um, in the Old Testament God dealt in different manners with his people, and that could be even salvifically, depending on the dispensationalist you talk to, that God, you could have salvation come by different means um, in your particular age, time period. Thanks. Um, and, and it's so ingrained in American evangelicalism, that's where you get the charts and the maps and the future and the other type of Israel, you know, Redemption, a future redemption of Israel, that's so embedded in a lot of American Christianity, and Reformed people rightly critique it, but he's kind of finding a continuity that goes beyond that to where we're the same now as Old Testament Israel under the Mosaic Covenant in very scary ways. Um, there are no curses. Christ has fulfilled it. There are no sanctions in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Um, to a New Testament believer because Christ has fulfilled it. He's taken the curse of the law. Um, all right, down to assurance. We can already see that if you bring this concept of covenant blessings and curses into your New Testament, our, our salvation will rest not on Christ, but on what? Our covenant faithfulness. Again, what they want to say that salvation is by faith alone, but is it really by faith alone? How would you say, that if they're going to say to you, oh, no, no, we believe salvation is by faith alone, what would you, how would you critique them? That's different than objective. Okay. They want to say, no, you're saved by faith. You get in by faith. You get out by accident. <laughs> you get, yeah. Right. But you're not going to stay there long. And they're going to say, well, you know, it's faith, it's faith alone, but faith is never alone. It's always with works, and that keeps you in. Is that how you understand it? Well, be careful, because we definitely want to say that faith is never alone. James is, is certainly saying that. But we always want to say that even when you struggle and you show sin, that you go back to the gospel. You, you don't go then to say, okay, I just need to try harder and, and go back to trying to earn my salvation. So that, that relationship between sanctification and justification is crucial. And if we, if we break it up in some way to say we get in by justification, but we stay in by sanctification, we don't understand the gospel. The gospel says you're justified, you get in by justification, and you stay in by justification. Mm-hmm. While that also will mean that because you're justified, you will start to be sanctified. But the, what's the only thing that excommunicates somebody? There's only one sin. Unbelief. Rejecting of the gospel. You can do a lot of stuff, but if you don't repent, if there's no repentance, then, you know, if, but if there's repentance on anything, even the extreme things, then there's always a way back in through the gospel. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And there are people in our denomination who... Yeah. There are people in our denomination who gravitate towards this type. And like I said, there's some diversity in that, but these are all people who want to use Calvin, who want to use a lot of, who want to use the things that we've been talking about here to say real presence. And again, I want to say there's a lot that's right here of saying, let's look at 
baptism as entrance. Let's look at God, um, these means of grace. Let's see a high view of the church. Let's understand this away from this individualistic and just solely experiential Christianity or solely even just hearing the gospel and intellectually responding. Yes, those are all good critiques that he's given here, but they've gotten, they've, they've so, they've so gotten this structure and what is missing? Conversion. There's no sense in which it's all mechanical. There's no sense in which conversion can happen at all. It comes with the very name that you stop to think of. Federal vision defines us corporately mm. and how we relate to the corporate covenantal context. Um, so the individual gets quickly lost here, in accepting these exceptions when you do something that sends against this covenant in some certain way. That um, it's, I mean, the the, problem, the the interesting thing with this is with the Pato communion attached to it. You're saved by grace through faith alone, but of course the child. But like you said, there's no conversion. Therefore, faith is defined simply as partaking, whether you had a personal experience of conversion or not. Or they couldn't go to pay communion. It's a total covenantal, you've lost the temple, if you will, and that whole efficacious stuff. Yeah. So you, when do you want, to, you want to get your kids baptized, right? Your children baptized, get them in the covenant. And then you want to get them the Lord's Supper as soon as possible because you want to get them in these covenant renewal signs. Because their, their salvation is defined by their participation in the covenant. So, page four, covenant children. Now we can see why it's so crucial for Federal Vision children to be quickly confirmed in the faith and admitted to the table. The covenant signs themselves affirm their salvation. Exclusion would be excommunication and loss of salvation. If we say to a, a covenant child, we don't think you're ready for um, to participate in the Lord's Supper, are we excommunicating them? They would say yes. Now we'll get to what, what, what we're really saying. We're not excommunicating them. In fact, we're, we're affirming to them exactly what the sacrament of baptism has said, that they are in the covenant, and that they, and we actually put the weight on that that it should have, that they, they have now entered in. There's just nothing wrong with their status. Um, the federal vision is correct to assess in their assessment of American evangelicalism, too often treat their children like outsiders and sinners. So we want to say amen to including your children. This is a serious error, and it hinders their, our ability to disciple our children. We should affirm to our children that these promises are for them. We should presume that God is at work in their lives and that they are Christians. We do still, however, believe in conversion and desire to see the clear signs of conversion in their lives. They should be able to mourn over their sin with repentance and understand Christ's sacrifice and receive and rest on him alone. We hinder and preclude this stage of Christian growth and maturity by pointing our children merely to the objective covenant status and not their need of repentance. Indeed, the whole Christian life should be one, one life of repentance and faith. Um, we do not treat our children like unbelievers by calling them to repentance and faith. We treat them like Christians. Um, you know, to... to to say you need to be converted, to, to show signs of conversion, I should say, is not to treat them like an unbeliever, but is actually to treat them like a Christian. Um, we want wholeheartedly to maintain our high view of the church and sacraments while leveling this critique. Baptism is a means of grace. The Spirit uh, does use our baptism in the application of redemption, though not necessarily at the time of the baptism or 
necessarily at all. Um, Christ is mystically present in the Lord's Supper, though he is also received by faith, and it's not done mechanically. Um, the church does have the power to bind and loose, but she cannot work apart from the activity of the Spirit. So we cannot move this into some sort of mechanical um, you know, formula that the church has, has given apart from faith, where we move past everything that Christ talks about with the spirituality of the Christian faith and turn it into a, this physical thing that, that Israel was, um, where, where it's all defined materially and, and of this world. But um, Anyway, this very brief introduction to and critique of Federal Vision Theology uh, tries to um, keep this practical rather than, than technical. Um, I have sort of avoided some of these, but I think these are some issues that we can see come up um, in the life of, of parents here or people coming into our church who are confused because we do want to stress baptism of infants. We do want to say a high view of sacraments. We want to say it's important to have the Lord's Supper. Um, but let me just introduce you to some case studies and raise, raise some of these questions in the last few minutes we have together. These are real pastoral situations, um, ones we've encountered here even in my, my time. Um, it's a little bit fudged to protect the, uh, the, the, the anonymity of people. But case one, parents believe that their daughter, who is 12 years old, should become a communicant member. How do you um, prevent setting up the child for the possibility of failing? How do you counsel the parents when they ask, what more does she have to do? And maybe ask another question, um, you know, what, uh, yeah, just, how, how would you approach, how would you approach um, a parent who desires their child to go through this, this stuff? Understanding what we've already said, where there's no age of accountability, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no figure that Scripture gives, right? What counsel you'll give to this, this parent? I don't understand the. Well, sorry, this is the question. No, good. The, the first question: How do you prevent setting the child up for the possibility of quote failing? Uh, by failing, do we mean like? The sin that we expect to see in our lives, or like no, so that that, that was poor. That probably poorly worded. Um, you're, you, this is a conversation you'll have with the parents who wants to bring who want to bring their children to be examined by the session. Right. Yeah. And the question really is: oh, is, is it not the, the question? Isn't just is she going to be able to, to um, present a credible profession of faith but is there a negative to them bringing the child through this that the parent has not considered um, that if they, if they quote unquote didn't present a credible profession of faith how then are we going to talk to this child and talk to this family does that make sense is that but it's clear uh, yeah so failing doesn't mean sin. Failing means like... That, that's why I did the little, the little quotes around it. Right, that's just telling that she's not right. Okay. Right. But my, I guess I do want to say that, you know, it's going to... It can sound like family. Could be. 
they can, they can be perceived by both the parent and even the child. Primary job is being a student at that point in life, where like you're taking tests a lot. Right. And just say you're being examined by the session. Yeah. Would you encourage some delays? Not calling them delays, but in terms of relationship building, communications courses, discipling, which all take time and also give you a better understanding outside of the parents' filter. Yeah, uh, really. As a, an elder sure. understanding, or, or a, if it's a, a girl, in this case, you know, one of our staff yeah. or something, take her under their wing and say, this is ready or this isn't ready. And behind the scenes, before that formality happens, explain that. Yeah, let, less other other environments to for other people to be able to discern a credible profession of faith. Good, yeah. You can you can encourage the, the parent to say there's there may be other avenues where we get that done. Um, how would you counsel a parent who who will ask if you hesitate on this? Well, what more does my child have to do? Are you now saying that they have to be saved by some other means? Well, take it out of the doing category completely in some ways. Okay. If they need to be educated, obviously the parents need to be a little more educated in what we believe, theologically, about this whole profession. Right. Um, so there would, there would be some education counseling there. That it, it, isn't, it isn't a doing thing, it's a believing thing. And maybe, you know, pointed questions sort of graciously to the parents about what you guys, you know, what we're, the church is looking for. Do you see in her these things? Have you heard from her lips these? Just, you know, letting them in on what it is, all that's behind it. Is there a possible identity issue with the parents feeling yeah, like, could be. You, know, you know, they really, you know, how could they be. look as parents because they're 12 year old? Well, that's could, the age for first It could be. Hey, you know, I, I want my kids to, yeah, look, everybody, all the other kids are doing it. I'm a good Christian. My, I want my kid to, to go through this. I mean, that's the key to any of these case studies, I'm sure. It, we've got to, as pastorally or shepherds, we ask a good question, Lisa, because there's, listen, we have to talk and listen and ask questions to figure out what really is behind yeah. this person wanting this kid to do this. It could be uh, a false understanding of assurance and the need for them to be encouraged that your baptized child is exactly where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. in life. There's nothing wrong with this child. Let them, give them the space, give them the time to actually work through the issues and their own personal acceptance of those issues. You know, So in other words, part of it could be this insecurity about their children's salvation. Part of it could be what Lisa just said. I see all the other kids, 12-year-olds, good. My kid's not. I must not be a good parent. So... Maybe they're judging themselves and asking maybe they're not doing a good job. And so we need to sit down and explain to them that their children are not robots and, and that, that every child is unique and different in their own way. So there's a lot of stuff that, that kind of back to our earlier conversation that requires a lot of um, listening and interacting and figuring out what's really behind this. So that the way you answer the, ask the question is fine, but... It begs about ten more questions, which is what I hear people doing, which is good. It's like, well, okay, why do you want them to be baptized at twelve? Why twelve? You know, all this yep. stuff. And and I think what I try to to do when I word this is not presume that the person 
is not already being able to present a credible professional faith. They may be able to really articulate it, or they may not. And especially here, it's as as someone who's on the session, or as somebody who's WWB, as someone who's encountering this, and you may hear this just as a leader in our church, which you, you guys are, you might hear a parent grumble to say, oh, I want to bring them, and they, their perspective on it is the church won't let me. How would you then step in? Hopefully you're not going to pa- be passive and say, oh, yeah, you know, <laughs> that's you know, that's the church tends to wait real late. Yeah, but yeah, or or you know these little the little side comments. That, again, it's not presuming that, but it's helping them to see. Okay, is there a spiritual issue here? That um, what are you looking for in this sacrament, uh, or or yourselves, or for your child? What do you what do what's the end goal for our children? What do we want for them? Um, so again, not presuming anything with the child, but just asking how do we think about the situation when we encounter parents who may come with different expectations. Case study two, a child was previously admitted to the table at eight years old. Uh, the family moves to our church and expects the child's communicant member to transfer. If the child cannot articulate a credible profession of faith, are you, in effect, excommunicating the child? No. Not if you've explained baptism and Lord's suffering. They were taking communion. Now you're not letting them take communion, you evil people. But if we didn't view them as communicant in the first place, we're not excommunicating anything. Where do you get off? The other church was... Was doing it fine. They they were godly elders in that church, and they they went through the whole exam, and they said it's okay. Shouldn't it just transfer over? Well, let's let's be, be full disclosure here. One of our doctrines is the organic nature of the church, and so this was particularly difficult because the doctrine. One of the things that it means is the actions of one church or the actions of all churches, and so. Um, you really, it's an issue of having to disagree with the action of an earlier church. Mm-hmm. You're right. We wouldn't phrase it excommunication. You'd say, well, we've, we've, we've entered into the exam that that church entered into and have a different opinion. But it's hard to say to them, it's as if your child was never communicated. Because mm-hmm. he was, or she was. Mm-hmm. So it, that's the tough one. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, our, our polity gives, it requires every session to examine. In other words, when you come to another church, even if you've been admitted, remember you got examined. You don't. We don't just say, "Well, don't we, get, we don't need to talk to you." Every local, and that's the emphasis on what's called the doctrine of original jurisdiction, which is that every church, and that's the localism thing coming out, that every local church is mandated to to govern the you know the membership roles of this church, and. Uh, I I was baptized in a very very liberal church. I was told they said, well, I don't think I've ever noticed that church. Every time I've been there subsequently, uh, but even growing up, ever cracking a Bible during a service, not for the sermon, not for anything. They just never went to the Bible. It just wasn't part of it. Didn't I never heard the gospel? Um, and I would say though that um, I went I went through a little confirmation class when I was maybe ten or something. If I was to come here in my membership, we'd accept the baptism. Um, but I would never really have a chance to, as a kid, to to encounter the gospel or to be 
to be examined by it. I would, I would maybe be really sort of falsely, falsely led on to on on my understanding of, of who Christ is uh, if we never did that membership interview in the first place. Um, I know I don't mean to, to treat any of this stuff. Just while I was trying to play, play devil's advocate, not, not I didn't mean to treat it cavalierly. These are serious issues. They're hard, and they take a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment. Um, but the end goal is to not not do a disservice for the kids, um, but to, to help them to know that their um, these sacraments actually have value and importance, um, and the process is important. Yeah. I don't understand this. Like, if, if a kid uh, took communion in a previous church and is told here that they can't, is that supposed to be sort of backwardly understood? The way the table is fenced here, is that supposed to be sort of be backwardly understood for the kid, like that they were eating to their detriment? So, if, for instance, let's take an easier example. Okay. <laughs> let's, take a, let's take an example of somebody who was in a federal vision church, Pedro Communion Church. Um, and they're, they're infants, and they're terrible infants. They're able to chew. I mean, you know, so even they have some sort of standard of that. Uh, they're able to take the... They're, they're able to, to eat. They come into our church, and they, they raise that question. What would be right for our church in that situation to do? To, to be just to say, okay, well, we're not going to examine at all this person who'd be, and then remember, think they're coming in as a communicant member, which is exactly how we bring membership in for anybody who isn't, who would be at that, you know, an adult in there, where we say we're not going to examine their, their faith. No, we, we'd say that that's our, our duty and our responsibility to examine their faith. Now, you got to back off, because the federal vision wants to, wants to come in there, remember, the in the context here, Federal Vision was to come in there and, and start saying, you're making these covenantal statements. You are saying they're covenant breakers. And we want to we want to de-escalate some of the rhetoric of this and, and draw back from the conclusions, I think, that they're prone to making on saying that visible and invisible are identical and covenant, you're putting things in covenant terms of curses and Blessings or being kicked out of the covenant, so de-escalated a little from that. But then realized to say, what's what's best for this child? In fact, when you do that, you're I think you're you're helpfully separating the significance of both sacraments, so that the Lord's Supper isn't exactly the same thing as baptism, where it's this idea of entering in. But you can actually be part of the covenant. And not taking the Lord's Supper. They're not, they're not exactly the same thing, but you're holding out there to say, to show for a credible profession of faith that this is, this is how we were told from scripture is to discerning, discerning, um, that type of discernment that's there in 1 Corinthians 11. And to be clear, when the child would cease to be part of a covenant, a covenant member of the church, is when they reach an age of which they voluntarily take themselves out of the church. So it's, that's 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 the only scenario that you can envision here. You know, where they, you know. And even that's sort of a judgment call on when the church would say, have to, you know, don't, we're not... Well, there'll be a process. Yeah. There'll yeah. be a process. But if <coughs> ceases to go to church voluntarily or 
you know, makes a decision, we still have a process to discern if the person really understands what they're doing, etc. It's not like it needs to matter, but that, but that's that's when it becomes excommunication of the truth in the true sense, I guess. So it sounds like the answer to my question is that the a child who's a child who has moved here and is not admitted to the temple by this session doesn't mean that they were outside. Uh, that the fencing of the table is for God's people, and we consider that child part of God's people. Yes. So it was not eating to their detriment before. Yeah, yeah I think as not or whatever the term is, not sorry. bringing the escalation out there, but to say we're not going to yeah. give you to do that would would. Um, would prevent you from the, the, the right maturing time to make that discernment for yourself um, and not to give you false assurance that you've already kind of gone through this on its own. But to know that you're a Christian and you're exactly in the developmental stage that you're, you're, you're appropriate for um, and that we hope that you're going to be able to know that that time, when that time comes, that you're going to uh, be able to really clearly appreciate this uh, not jumping the gun on it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, tomorrow an eight-year-old visits the church, um, walks up with their parents, and mm. you, you want to bless them as a covenant child. You're like, no, wait, I want the, yeah. the communion. Oh, yeah. You're not going to. haven't seen a slap the hand. Have right. You? Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. So, they don't rule it. <laughs> right. right. It, hap- it happens quite frequently. Yeah. Yeah. We just have to yeah. you know, trust the parents with her. That they, with their parents, are coming forward, and we just have to trust that they heard the way we fence the table, and right. and uh, we have to be clear that we fence it rightly, which is not just you've been bad. I've heard some, you know, some form, you, you've been baptized. <laughs> no, you're a member of sending some gospel-leading church, you know, by confession of faith. Um, Likewise, you don't slap the hands of people that you're seeing for the first time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a sense in which there's. There may be appropriate conversation that happens at, outside of that context, but we're not. The, the fencing is the is the verbal. Never pull it away. Yeah, yeah. You can the declarative power. We're not. We're not doing. We're not. We don't have bouncers. Um, it's not one of the rules of these. SLBs bouncing. The B in SLB is bouncing. Yeah. Uh, WLB does. <laughs> yeah, the WLB is. Yeah. Uh, case three, family uh, appreciates the high spirituality, spiritual value that we place on Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. They want to know from you, is my child missing out on something vital to her faith by not partaking? partaking? What do you say? Yes and no. I say yes, and that's a good thing. <laughs> I have three almost adult children who do not take communion. It's my hope and prayer that they are feeling like they're missing out on something to a certain extent. And that it will become more and more real to them, hopefully, and draw them, in one sense. Depends on the person's situation. But it's, again, vital to faith you'd have to define. (laughs) So I would say, I agree, that's yes. But, but then well, I would I, say no, because the very fact that it's having that effect upon the children yeah. is exactly what the table is meant to do. Right. Because remember, Paul does not only say, you know, the koinonia language and what we do is koinonia, etc. He also talks about how 
for those who partake falsely or wrongly, they bring judgment upon themselves. So there's actually a, a good warning, which is a means of grace. Warning is always, you know, to be warned to be half saved. So that table is warning that child, as you said, which is a means of grace. We, we all doing its thing. Yeah, we all participate. And even even if for a, for a child you want to say you're exactly in the right developmental, you know, you're doing you're doing well, you're a Christian. You're still putting it out there. It says you're still looking forward to a day when conversion has to be able to be articulated in a in a credible way. That um, you know, my daughter can my daughter right now can tell you that she's saved by faith alone in Christ and that Christ died for her sins. I mean, but she doesn't know what that. I mean, I don't have to push hard before I can see that a lot of that's parroting. A lot of that doesn't really connect all the dots. Um, so there's no way that she would be able to prevent a credible profession of faith. But I have to say to her that as she's getting ready for the sacraments or as she's looking, you know, she sees us partaking, uh, that this is a good time for you to be praying. Um, that one day you'll be able to, to articulate it in a, in a way that's independent of mom and dad, that you can do this on your own. And so it's, a, it's a good opportunity. One of the ways that really that sort of Compliments. I mean, I read, we read earlier in our catechism, you know, large catechism, that passage about who should partake, children. So it's all clear in our confession who should, who should, um, in this regard. But what really also accompanies that is when you look at Book of Church Order and you look at the way in which our polity works itself out, the responsibilities of, the, of communicant members are different than the responsibilities of those who are not. And it includes everything ranging from voting in a congregational meeting to what, what you can and cannot do in a board. And there's a whole, it's amazing how clearly the assumption of Westminster was that this, whoever is doing this, all of these other rights and privileges comes with it. And so it's kind of an interesting thing when those who sort of step back as covenantal people and they, they have this very paedo-communicant sort of or early or hyper-early community membership sort of view. How do you reconcile that with all the expectations that, that's happening there? You know, this person and the things that they're supposed to be doing in the church as community members, which re- respect, in the language of our confession, discernment, an age of discernment. Yeah. Um, so, but, so, yeah, but so, so I would say that it's very careful how you answer that question. I, I really appreciate the perspective you had on that, though. I, especially if they if they're saying we love what you've been saying about the sacrament, make sure that you're not saying that. Okay, now we, this we don't. They're not outsiders of the service. We don't ask them to leave and just you know some some traditions have done that in the past. But uh, we want to say that you know God's at work here totally for everybody, and just as the word. It has an effect on even those who reject it, um, there's still an effect. Um, so the whole reason I bring this up is because I hope you can appreciate uh, how close we are to the federal vision theology, um, but the distinction is really, really important on where the difference is. Um, there are going to be a lot of situations where you'll hear people say that you hold a high view of sacraments you understand this reformed continuity. You like this corporate understanding of the church of God. You're not all about the individual experience. And yet, 
we're not all the way there with, with the federal vision. In fact, that, that starts to lose the gospel in the midst of the high church. Um, that they, they meld together in a, in a really unhelpful way that starts to diminish the gospel from being saved by, by faith in Christ alone to then adding this, this, it cannot but add to the, the, um, responsibility of the person to bring some saving aspect to themselves, even if it's just by remaining in. So. What do you mean by high church? So, uh, high, a high view of the church, that it, it has, Significance and value, rather than a low view of the church that would um, say, "Hey, we're just a bunch of Christians gathered together here. Um, there's nothing. There's no. There's no sacramental aspect of this. We're not. In, we're not instituted by Christ. We're just a gathering." When we look at Acts, you know, some people look at Acts and just say it's a, it's a casual gathering of Christians. Whereas I think, I think if you pay attention to what Luke is laying out there, it's an institution of a body here that is designed by, by Christ as a means of grace and as a place where his redemptive presence is, is, is mediated. So um, that's what I mean by that. And to say that making the gospel equivalent to your participation in the church um, will start to sound a lot like what we're saying, but in very important ways it's not what we're saying. Just as a baptism that saves will often sound like a this but it's very different, not, but not necessarily, not necessarily immediately is essential, or else you're going you're gonna to be confused to say, oh, you've entered, you're saved now by faith, by your baptism, and then you can sort of be kicked out of it. Another way to say it simply is the church is an essential element of the gospel. It's a, that's how I view the church. The church, as a, built upon the foundation of the apostles, Christ the cornerstone, is an essential element of the gospel. Um, he said, therefore, we believe in ecclesial baptism, I mean, ecclesial conversion. Someone can say, well, how does somebody convert it? Low church says, pray a sinner's prayer. High church says, pray a sinner's prayer to be baptized and admitted to the Lord's table by the church. He said, that's, that's and, a, and, a, and a mechanical view would say, be baptized. <laughs> and, and, you know, the federal vision would just say, just enter into the covenant. So it would be high gospel, high church. That's where you started. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, let me, I think that's it. Let me close us in prayer. Uh, yeah. Okay. Father, we do thank you for uh, everything that you've instituted um, to redeem us and to give us assurance of our salvation. Thank you for uh, the uh, many who we stand on the shoulders of who have worked these throughout um, through local controversies and, and heresies and um, so, many, so much wisdom you've given by your word and the spirit. Thank you for the call to worship tomorrow, and I pray that you might um, strengthen us in our faith through it and the means of grace. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.